Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in to this special radio edition of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, coming to you from the YBR studios in Colorado. Today, the program takes you back to the world where only sound reigns supreme, where the imagination fills in the gaps for a picture in your head that is too exhilarating, extravagant, and expensive for any silver screen. The world of radio. Today, the theater of the mind is whisked away by a rickety old jalopy to the howled halls of Madison High School. The institution founded by one Yodar Critch probably never anticipated the misadventures that would ensue there between 1948 and 1957. But then again, not many outside of Madison were truly prepared for anything such as the gossipy antics of Harriet Conklin, the scheming but silly machinations of Walter Denton, the absent-mindedness of Mrs. Davis, the explosive temper of Osgood Conklin, and the bashful nature of Philip Boynton. Least of all, though, the world was not expecting a strong, fierce, love-crazy, but self-propelling figure as Connie Brooks. Yet it all happened, and tonight we will visit it once again as we tune in the signals of the past to September 19th, 1948, for a visit with our Miss Brooks. Listen to the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. CBS presents Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Our Miss Brooks is an English teacher at Madison High School. She can tell you everything you need to know about the present and past subjunctive, but she's not at all sure about the future. That is, her romantic future with biology teacher Philip Boynton. Like most men of science, Mr. Boynton is quite modest and reticent, especially when it comes to women. Well, this, of course, is in reality. But in the dreams of Connie Brooks, he's sometimes quite another fellow. Listen. Miss Brooks, I've decided to throw caution to the winds. May I call you Constance? Of course. Thank you, darling. Darling, with a little encouragement, this lad will do all right. (laughs) You're so lovely, so beautiful, so alluring. So why are you standing so far away? (laughs) Oh, is, is this better? Oh, much. You're only 10 feet away now. If I get any closer, I'm liable to kiss you. Please, dear, you're standing on my foot. Oh, my darling, when you're close to me like this, I feel enchanted. I seem to hear a little angel singing in my ear. Hmm? What? What's that? Oh, fine. My little angel turns out to be Big Ben. <laughs> oh, quiet, you little dream butcher. Come in. Are you awake, Connie? Oh, yes, darn it. How are you this morning, Mrs. Davis? Oh, fine, dear. 
My, you must have had a very exciting dream. Aren't you warm with all those covers wrapped around you? Oh, I didn't notice them. Pardon me while I unravel. <laughs> Certainly, dear. And while you're at it, you might as well unpucker, too. <laughs> I brought you a little breakfast snack up on this tray, Tani. It's a brand new recipe I've just discovered. Oh, that's very considerate of you, Mrs. Davis, but I'd rather not try any of your new recipes for breakfast. The last one, as I recall, was Peruvian sprats fried in garlic salt and almond paste. <laughs> oh, you love this little dish. It's a sort of a cereal. I got so tired of the ones that crackle and pop in your plate. This one's real quiet. Oh, what is it, Mrs. Davis? Boiled pine needles. <laughs> Boiled pine needles? Yes, First, I boil all the tar and rosin out of them. Why? That's the best part. <laughs> then I place them in extra heavy cream and coat them with powdered sugar. Oh, look at those slender, graceful needles lying there. They just seem to be sighing and whispering to each other. This is the sneakiest bowl of cereal I ever saw. <laughs> oh, no, thanks, Mrs. Davis. I've got to get ready for school. Walter Denton's picking me up in his car this morning. Why, Connie, is your car in the shop again? Yes, Mrs. Davis, I dented my radiator pretty badly the other day. I got a ticket, too, for passing a car on the left. But that's not illegal, passing a car on the left. It is when the car's approaching you. <laughs> I'm certainly enjoying this ride, Walter. It's a beautiful day. Oh, it sure is, Miss Brooks. Uh, notice anything different about the car? The car? Why, yes, the top is down, but... Walter, this wasn't a convertible. It was a club coupe with a hard top. Sure. Well, what did you do, take the top off? Oh, I didn't have to. It fell off. <laughs> the Twelve of us went for a ride the other night. That's when it happened. Twelve? Oh, but that isn't safe, Walter. You shouldn't put 12 people in one car. Well, they weren't all in the car, Miss Brooks. Six of them were on top. <laughs> That's why it caved in, I guess. I guess. <laughs> I hope nobody was hurt, Walter. No. No, fortunately, there were all girls inside, and they're pretty soft. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of girl softball players, you're right. <laughs> Was Harriet Conklin with you that night? Oh, sure. I haven't been able to get rid of her for a month. She says she's in love with me. Love. <laughs> that is either cynicism or sinus trouble. What's the matter with Harriet Conklin, Walter? Why don't you like her? Well, outside of her being the principal's daughter, there's nothing the matter with her, but she's always chasing me. It must be hero worship. Uh, well, look, modest one If I may make a suggestion Why don't you change your attitude toward Harriet? Be kindly, but firm In other words, make her realize that your association is strictly platonic oh, You mean like you and Mr. Boynton? Ooh <laughs> And without an anesthetic, too I'm sorry, Miss Brooks I know you're sort of fond of him But he always seems so interested in his white mice and frogs and stuff Gee, I like Mr. Boynton personally, but if you'll pardon my saying so, Miss Brooks, I think in certain matters he's real square. <laughs> he ain't round. <laughs> well, 
here's Harriet's house, Miss Brooks. Uh, will you excuse me a minute? I've got to take her to school, too. Her dad left earlier than usual this morning, so she's without a ride. Go right ahead, Walter. Well, you don't have to come to the door, Walter. I'll be right there. Oh, okay, Harriet. It's Miss Brooks, Mrs. Conklin. Ooh. Miss Brooks! That's what we school teachers need, publicity. <laughs> Will you come up to the porch a minute, Miss Brooks? I'd like to talk to you about something. All right, Mrs. Conklin. Hello, Miss Brooks. We'll wait for you in the car. Okay, Harriet. Hello, Miss Brooks. Hello, Mrs. Conklin. What is it you wanted to tell me? Well, I've noticed how hard you've been working during the summer session, and I think a little vacation would do you a lot of good. Yes, I suppose it would, but... <laughs> uh, Mr. Conklin and I have a summer cottage up at Crystal Lake. Now, tomorrow, Saturday, is our anniversary, and I think it would be nice if you would come up to help us celebrate it. I won't say a word about it to Mr. Conklin. We'll surprise him. Could you come? Well, I really don't know, Mrs. Conklin. You see, I have a date with Mr. Boynton tomorrow. Oh, so much the better. Bring him along. You know, uh, seeing how happy our married life is might give Mr. Boynton some ideas on the subject. Why, Mrs. Conklin, I don't know what you're driving at. <laughs> well, I've seen you look at Mr. Boynton, Miss Brooks, and when one woman sees another woman look at a man the way you look at Mr. Boynton, Miss Brooks... That woman knows that the other woman is thinking thoughts about that man that a woman has thought about a man since men and women were created. From the picture, little man, you've had a busy woman. <laughs> uh, look, Mrs. Conklin, I am sort of fond of Mr. Boynton, but I don't want people to think that I... Oh, they will anyway. So you might as well... <laughs> you might as well land him. <laughs> I'll tell you what. You and Mr. Boynton come up to Crystal Lake tomorrow afternoon, and you can be our house guests over the weekend. Oh, but Mrs. Conklin, maybe Mr. Conklin doesn't want any house guests this weekend. Oh, don't worry about that, Miss Brooks. I'll handle Osgood. He'll be delighted to see you when I get through with him. <laughs> and I'm sure the atmosphere will be extremely matrimonial. Mrs. Conklin, you just sold me. I'm having lunch with Mr. Boynton today, and I'll extend your very kind invitation to spend the weekend in your trap at Crystal Lake. I mean, cottage. <laughs> oh, fine. But don't breathe a word about it to Mr. Conklin, whatever you do. Oh, don't worry about that, Mrs. Conklin. While I'm at school, I breathe as few words as possible to Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Well, how do you like the food in the school cafeteria this year, Miss Brooks? About the same as last year, Mr. Boynton. At least this beef stew is the same as last year. In fact, that's when I think it was made. <laughs> oh, this chili is pretty good. Would you pass the catsup, please? Oh, surely. I think the salt and pepper are over on your side, too. Salt and pepper on chili? Well, I like things well-seasoned. Would you pass the horseradish, too, please? Here you are. Oh, thank you. Now, a little mustard and I'm all set. For the coroner. Uh, what do you drink with your lunch, Mr. Boynton? A lit can of Sterno? Uh, I'm afraid I have a cast iron stomach, Miss Brooks. Really? Who helps you carry it to school? <laughs> I've always liked hot dishes, Miss Brooks. I think spicy things enhance a meal tremendously. That goes for living, too, doesn't it, Mr. Boynton? What do you mean, Miss Brooks? Mr. Boynton... Instead of our usual Saturday night date, how would you like to go away and spend a weekend together? <coughs> oh, what a shame, Mr. Boy. 
Martin. You've got chili all over your red tie. But I, I'm wearing a blue tie. It's red now. I didn't mean to shock you like that, Mr. Boynton. I just thought it would be nice to get away for a while. Say, up to Crystal Lake. Oh, but, 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 but... Check your motorboat, mister. <laughs> Look, Mr. Boynton. Mrs. Conklin has invited us up to their summer cottage because tomorrow's their anniversary and she wants us to help them celebrate. Well, uh, I wouldn't want to deprive you of any fun, Miss Brooks, but... Good. What time will you pick me up tomorrow? <laughs> well, uh, I guess I might as well be a good sport. I'll call for you at 10 o'clock. Fine. Pardon me, Miss Brooks, Mr. Boynton. Oh, hey, hello, Mr. Conklin. At ease. <laughs> On your way back to class, Miss Brooks, I'd like you to stop in my office for a moment. There's something I'd like to discuss with you. Certainly, Mr. Conklin. I'll be there in about ten minutes. Very well. As you were. <laughs> You'd never know Mr. Conklin spent some time in the Army, would you? Mr. Conklin was a major in the last war, Mr. Boynton. He served for five years. Was that so? In what theater? Low state. <laughs> He sold war bonds in the lobby. <laughs> of course, from the shape of his head, I could have sworn he spent some time in the Pentagon building. I wonder what he wants to see me about. Well, maybe it's that promotion to the head of English department you've been hoping for. Yes. Or he might have reconsidered about giving me a couple of weeks off with pay. Or maybe the raise that's due me next season is going to be made retroactive to include the summer session. Or maybe he's just going to do what he always does. Hit me across the back of the neck with a bag of hot stones. <laughs> Come in. You wanted to see me, Mr. Conklin? Oh, yeah. Yes, come in, Miss Brooks. Sit down, won't you? Now, I have no desire to pry into the personal lives of any of my teachers. Good for you, Mr. Conklin. I always say that a person. However, I've, uh, I've noticed that lately you're spending quite a bit of time both in and out of school with Mr. Philip Boynton. People are beginning to talk. What people, Mr. Conklin? Well, members of the school board. They're still considering you as a possible new head of the English department. You know how they feel about fraternization among the faculty at Madison, Miss Brooks. And I... Well, it would be different if you were married or even engaged to Mr. Boynton. But, Mr. Conklin, how can one ever get engaged if one doesn't fraternize with one or um, one more than one if necessary to find the right one? <laughs> <laughs> that is your problem, Miss Brooks. Now, I'm not asking you to stop seeing Mr. Boynton completely, but I do wish you'd think twice about your public meetings. Uh, maybe you could... Uh, Find a hideaway? Uh, Miss Brooks. That's not what I had in mind at all. Me either, but don't knock it until you've tried it. <laughs> that is, I, I wasn't going to... Uh, now, uh, my anniversary is tomorrow, and I'm going to surprise Mrs. Conklin with a little trip to Crystal Lake. We have a cottage there, you know. Yes, I know. And if I could feel that your conduct over the weekend was above reproach, well, I'd enjoy my little vacation that much more. Oh, don't worry about Mr. Boynton and myself, Mr. Conklin. Believe me, you won't hear a thing about us. <laughs> It's me, Martha. Osgood. I'll be right down here. Oh, hi, 
I've been expecting Harriet any minute. Osgood, I've got a surprise for you. Well, now, that's a peculiar coincidence. I've got a surprise for you. You have? What is it? Now, watch yours. Well, I thought it would be nice if we spent our anniversary in the cottage at Crystal Lake. Oh. Oh, what do you say, Osgood? Shall we get away from it all this weekend? Yes, that's not a bad idea. Oh, good. I know we'll have a grand time, dear. Now, what's your surprise? My surprise? Well, I thought it might be a good idea if we spent our anniversary at Crystal Lake. Oh, why, Osgood, that's a wonderful idea. Hello, Mom. Hi, Dad. Oh, hello, Harriet. Now, if you'll both sit still for a moment, I'll acquaint you with my rarest scheme of the season. I mean, this is rare. Uh, what's rare, dear? Tomorrow's your anniversary, right? That's right. Where do you think you're going to spend it? You'll never guess, so don't even try. In our summer cottage at Crystal Lake. Crystal Lake? Why, why, Harriet, that's a wonderful idea. Isn't it, Osgood? It must be. Everybody's getting it. (laughs) Ah, this is the life. I'm certainly glad we didn't close this place up on Labor Day like we usually do. Oh, I knew you'd enjoy yourself here, Osgood. Now, just relax and smoke your pipe. I've got a little uh, dusting to do. Think I'll take a little nap. This hammock is very restful. Uh, Before you go, how about a little anniversary kiss, huh? Oh, but Osgood, it's only one o'clock in the afternoon. We weren't married until three. Uh, That's all right. Let's have a little preview. (laughs) Osgood, I declare I don't know what comes over you when we come up here. Must be the mountain air. Must be. Come here, baby. Hello, baby, too. I was just... Oh, am I interrupting something? Uh, No, no, nothing at all, Harriet. I was just about to salute your mother on her anniversary. (laughs) That's as good a reason as any, I guess. Here's some wildflowers I picked for you both. Congratulations and many, many more happy anniversaries for all of us. Oh, thank you, Harriet. Now run along down to the lake, dear. Your father wants to take a little nap. Okay. I'll see if our rowboat's in shape. Don't forget we're going fishing this afternoon. Now you drop off to sleep, Osgood. And I'll I'll wake you in about an hour. Fine, fine. Uh... I'll get your bag out of the trunk. Oh, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Gosh, that was a long drive, but here we are. Yep. Now, it's right up these porch steps, I believe. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! Anybody home? What is this? Who in the world? Miss Brooks. Mr. Boynton. What are you doing here? That's what I like about Crystal Lake, the hospitality. <laughs> Why, what's all the commotion about? Oh, oh, it's you, Miss Brooks, and Mr. Boynton. Oh, I'm so glad you could come. Martha, did you oh, invite... Of course, dear. I asked Miss Brooks and Mr. Boynton to spend the weekend with us. That's one surprise I didn't tell you. Aren't you tickled? Yes. (laughs) Well, then act it, Osgood. You certainly don't look tickled. Some people tickle easier than others. Well, maybe Mr. Coughlin would rather be alone. Oh, nonsense, Mr. Boynton. Osgood and I see as much of each other alone as we want to. 
We're already married, you know. <laughs> yes, I know. Congratulations on your anniversary. Oh, thank you, Mr. Boynton. I always say married life is give and take. Me too. <laughs> You'd have given me a little warning. I wouldn't have let you take me here. Now, you two must be all hot and sticky from your drive up here. I, I hope you both have a bathing suit. For Mr. Conklin's sake, I hope we each have a bathing suit. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll show you where to change. Uh, just follow me and we'll all get ready for a nice dip. I don't want to go for a dip. Oh, now, dear, we must do the things our guests want to do. Why? Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm afraid I don't have a suit with me. I forgot to pack it. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Boynton. I'll fix you up with one of Mr. Conklin's. Now, come along. You can nap for a few more minutes, Osgood. I'll take the folks in tow. Yes, do that. He sounds like he'd like you to tow us about three miles and then sink us. <laughs> uh, you just go right in here, Mr. Boynton. You'll find a bathing suit in the bottom drawer of that dresser. Oh, thanks, Mrs. Conklin. <laughs> Uh, now, here's the guest room. You and my daughter, Harriet, are sharing it for the weekend. Oh, is Harriet here for your anniversary, too? Yes. Oh, she's so devoted. Been like a daughter to us. <laughs> well, that's a coincidence. <laughs> now, before I leave you, dear, I, I want you to know that I planned this weekend for your sake more than anybody's. So I want you to take advantage of it. Oh, that's really very kind of you, Mrs. Conklin. Remember, all you have to do is keep close to Mr. Conklin and myself. Then when Mr. Boynton sees how happy we are, I'm sure he'll start thinking of marriage as a jolly institution it is. Well, what do you say? Are you game? Looks like Mr. Boynton's the game, but I'll take a shot at him. Uh, or it. <laughs> you know, I really do like the guy, Mrs. Conklin. I know you, dear, my dear. Now, uh, one more thing. In addition to our example, I think you should show your domesticity as well. So tonight, I want you to cook the dinner. Me? Oh, definitely. Uh, what dish do you prepare best? Soup. <laughs> what kind? Campbell's. <laughs> well, I, I think something you cook yourself might make a better impression on Mr. Boynton. I know. Uh, you can barbecue uh, some spare ribs for dinner. Now, uh, get into your suit and I'll see you on the porch. Oh, isn't this fun? It's just like a fox hunt. Tally-ho and yoikes. Tally-ho to you, Mrs. Conklin. And I hope we all don't make a bunch of yoikes out of ourselves. <laughs> Stop rocking the hammock, Martha. I'm getting seasick. Very well. Now, now uh, remember, Osgood, we've got to make a good impression for Miss Brooks' sake. I don't like it, Martha. I never did believe in this matchmaking business. Besides, I thought we'd be alone, at least part of the time. Confounded, all this mountain air going to waste. It uh, won't go to waste, dear. It's always tonight. Yes. <laughs> Come here, baby. <laughs> Remember what I used to call you when we were first married? Yeah. yeah. Call me it again, Mother. All right. <laughs> sugar cookie. Am I really your sugar cookie still? Well, your icing's a little whiter. But... <laughs> Miss Brooks, where did you oh, come hello, from? Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. Uh, My 
My, what a lovely bathing suit. One piece, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, look at Miss Brooks' uh, bathing suit, Osgood. That's long enough. Miss <laughs> <laughs> Brooks, be sure and tell Mr. Morton you made the suit yourself. Men love practical women. Oh. Hello there. Everybody all ready? Oh, it's Mr. Fox. Um... <laughs> Mr. Boynton, I mean. Uh, why, uh, Mr. Conklin's suit fits you perfectly, Mr. Boynton. Don't you think so, Miss Brooks? Yes, it's very nice. Aren't the sleeves a little wide at the wrist? <laughs> that is one of my older ones. That's uh, quite a suit you have on, Miss Brooks. Mm, she made it herself, uh, didn't you, dear? Yes, out of an old stocking and some pen wipers. <laughs> Let's get out of the lake, huh? You're on. Let's go. Yeah, here we are. I'll help you up, Miss Brooks. Oh, Oh, thanks, Mr. Boynton. Oh, that was wonderful. Welcome aboard, folks. Oh, hello, Mr. Conklin. We didn't know you were out here. That's all right, my dear. Uh, Let's uh, let's go take a boat ride, Miss Brooks. Oh, nonsense. Why should you leave the raft? Why shouldn't they? Uh, Mr. Boynton? Yes? Last one in is a sugar cookie. (laughs) We've been walking along the shore for quite a ways, Mr. Boynton. Just where is this little pier where the man rents the boat? Oh, it's right up ahead, Miss Brooks. He's got several different kinds of small craft. Personally, I think that flat bottoms are the best. Oh, you do? Well, that's what's nice about America. You can think what you like. (laughs) Hi there, folks. I guess you want a boat, huh? Best way in the world to S-Y-H. S-Y-H? Spend your honeymoon. Uh, We're not married. We're just here to... Oh, not married, huh? Up here for a little P.S. Private smudging. Just a minute. All you have to do is rent us a boat. Well, here's one right here with a small motor. Very nice. G-F-N. Good for necking. We're not going to do anything of the sort. W-S-S. Who says so? B.T. Bashful type. (laughs) Well, go ahead. Get in, miss. Hey, here. Let me help you, Miss Brooks. There. We'll pay you when we come in, all right? Sure. Well, remember, miss, K-Y-L-O-Y-H-H. Keep your line out. You'll hook him. S.L. So long. H-T-R. Hit the road. How do you like the ride, Miss Brooks? Oh, it's very nice, Mr. Boynton. I think we better turn around now. We're pretty far from the pier. Hey, that's funny. The steering wheel seems to be stuck. It does? Isn't that a rowboat in that little cove we're heading for? A rowboat? Oh, yes, it is. I'd better cut the motor off where we're heading right for them. Oh. No, the ignition lever is stuck, too. Oh, my goodness. You've got to do something, Mr. Boynton. We're getting pretty close to that rowboat. Look out! Get out of the way! Quick, Miss Brooks. Lie on the bottom of the boat. I can't stop it. Oh. <laughs> Did we hit them? No, thank heaven. We just missed them. Oh, we're terribly sorry, folks. Oh, that's all right, Miss Brooks. We didn't really want to catch any fish here. (laughs) 
I love eating out in the open air. I'm sure that the spare ribs Miss Brooks barbecued will be delicious. Don't you think so, Osgood? I think I should have made them. <laughs> My barbecue. But Mr. Boynton will enjoy them so much more because Miss Brooks did it. Won't you, Mr. Boynton? Well, yes, I suppose Here I will. Here are, folks. I hope they turned out all right. I fixed a plate especially for you, Mr. Boynton. Oh, thanks, Miss Brooks. <laughs> well, let's fall to, everyone. Oh, I'll bet they're delicious. Might as well taste it. <laughs> what is this, anyway? No good. It tastes like charcoal. Uh, did you do what I told you, dear? Uh, barbecued the ribs slowly with a nice, smooth-going bed of coals? Certainly, I had a lovely bed of glowing coals right over the ribs. <laughs> I'm going into the house and cook myself an egg. Uh, wait, dear, I'll fix you something. You can't cook any better than she can. <laughs> but, Daddy, this is your anniversary dinner. Uh, yes, dear. Uh, uh, let's be cheerful. <clears throat> Oh, how we danced on the night we were waiting. Anniversary, my foot! I'm going inside! We danced and we danced, but she wouldn't drop dead. <laughs> there, dear. Wasn't that a nice snack? And just the two of us alone in the kitchen. Well, it was better than those barbecued rocks. Martha, if that poor Mr. Boynton falls for Miss Brooks, I now, think it'll dear, be... Now, dear, we agreed to forget all about it. Let's go out and sit in the hammock together. The mountain air is still with us, you know, and it's quite dark on the porch. All right, Martha. What's this? Who's that in the hammock? It's us, Daddy. Us? Harriet and me, Mr. Conklin. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Hey, it's Walter Denton, Daddy. He got here while you were inside. I invited him yesterday to surprise you. This is the last straw. Now, calm down, Osgood. Remember your blood pressure. It gives him kind of a purpley look, doesn't it? <laughs> I've got to be calm. Let's go for a little stroll, Martha. Maybe we'll run into Mr. Boynton and Miss Brooks somewhere. I doubt it, Mr. Conklin. We're at the other end of the hammock. <laughs> oh, no. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. Come, Martha. Let's go into our bedroom and go to sleep. Maybe when I wake up in the morning, this will all be oh, a we, bad... We, we can't go into our bedroom together, Osgood. Now that Walter's here, Harriet and Miss Brooks, and I will have to use uh, our room... You and Walter and Mr. Boynton will have to sleep in the guest house. What? Now this has gone far enough. I'm going to tell you people something. Before you do, Mr. Conklin, I'd like to ask you a question. What is it? How are my chances of being appointed head of the English department? <gasps> you don't have to answer now. You can think it over and tell me right after I've blown my brains out. <laughs> Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lois, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton was played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, Noreen Gamale, and Dink Trout. Bob Lamont speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Now wasn't that a lovely time out at Crystal Lake? Yes, before hockey mask-wearing, machete-wielding monsters lived out in those woods, the worst that could happen was Mr. Conklin's anniversary trip being thwarted by the constant stream of visitors on his quiet getaway. And don't worry, folks, I'm sure Connie Brooks will get Mr. Boynton in her arms ever more someday, even if it takes a motion picture to do so. But as we step outside the theater of the mind to the topic of the day, we find ourselves wondering how the terribly funny trials and tribulations of a high school English teacher could carry over into today with such charm and good-hearted cheer. How have the adventures of Armis Brooks found themselves in the things we carry on with us to this day, and how have we even seen its influence in the real world beyond the parameters of what entertains us? Well, to get us to an answer with this big question, we need another avid enthusiast of all-time radio, and we have quite a guest this evening. He is an audio artist who has contributed to the legacy of new media being done in the field today with works like the upcoming Burning Gotham and the revival of Frontier Gentlemen, all while maintaining the legacy of classic radio before him with the innovative and incredible Breaking Walls, the Rawl Breakers podcast. And tonight we have him here to give us all a much-needed lesson in history. Please welcome to the show our Mr. James Scully. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and <laughs> have been made bashful by your introduction towards me. I appreciate oh, go, go, go talk to McDougal about that. You, you're in your bashfulness. <laughs> Welcome, sir. You are. Um, you. I will. I'm going to tell you right now because um, I've waited to make sure this was on mic and to make sure you blush even more. Um, when this show got started, you were you were a key influence in how to talk about the media of the past. Your show Breaking Walls is quite unlike anything else that's out there. And I think the radio review episodes of this show come with a heavy influence from Breaking Walls. And I think that one of the key things that you do, and I frankly think you do it the best, is that you are bridging a gap for people. Um, the, the amount of work that you put into, whether that's splicing in Dunning interviews or shading interviews combined with the shows combined with your lovely voice, doing these narrations and telling the story, you are giving the world an introduction to old time radio. Um, I really would like to know how this version of the show came about because this was not how it initially started. Yeah. Well, I, if- you know, if you go back to my initial influences as a child, I happened to grow up in a house in Brooklyn, New York, with my grandparents and my great grandparents all living under the same roof with me. So I got everything from, you know, uh, my great grandmother was born in 1920. Mm-hmm. So I would sit with her and hear stories of the Lower East Side in New York City uh, during the Depression. And my grandfather was born in 1941. So uh, Christmas 1999, my grandmother bought him a box set of. Walter Cronkite selects the 60 greatest radio shows of the 20th century from Radio mm-hmm. Spirits. It was, uh, you know, one of their box sets. They were advertising heavily as Y2K was upon us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, at that point, I was I was 13 years old and I was familiar with with old time radio. I'm I grew up watching Nick at Night and um, watching AMC when they played old movies and Turner Classic movies. And and, you know, if you if you watch. Um, a Christmas story, drink your Ovaltine, or there's this great episode of Pinky in the Brain when he's listening to the shadow on the radio and he decides to become the mist to take <laughs> over the world. So I was, you know, it was like I was familiar with this genre, but he put on an episode of what he thought would be the shadow, but it turned out it was X minus one because my grandfather didn't know how to fast forward a cassette. And 
you know, it just, I was just at that right age where I was old enough to sit and watch or listen in this case with, you know, hold my attention. Mm -hmm. It's great. It it blew me away. And honestly, a lot of the stuff that I really liked as a 13 year old from that box set are still things that I think are really great today. Uh, We, we have that, we have that in common because mine was um, the, mine was my grandfather getting me the Sherlock Holmes tape from a Cracker Barrel the one tape, like it was one of those like an individual ones. And then my folks got me not the Cronkite one, but the other one that kind of has similar out outward packaging um, where mm-hmm. it's just 60 greatest all time, uh, all time greatest radio shows. Yep. Um, and then that that's where I was wearing out a lot of Charlie McCarthy tapes. I, 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 I clamored onto comedy pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But X minus one, that's a great way to kind of like propel yourself in that if there's a way to get into the theater of the mind, there's one for you. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the intro alone is what hooked me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just the it's, it's opening intro. Uh, I mean, of course at that time that show came out in 1955 and pretty much nobody was listening to it, but you know, I digress, yeah. uh, but you asked me how, how this came about. Yeah. Uh, well, I went to school for uh, art and design. I spent more than 10 years as a, an art director, graphic designer, copywriter. Yeah. But around yeah. 2014, I, I wanted to start a podcast and I was running an art collective at the time called the wall breakers, which is where all this comes from. Uh, what the, you know, the, when we launched in 2012, there was a lot of similar sites that you could send your stuff to Zach about, like, let's say, you, you know, you're working on something, send it to me. We'll write about it. We'll write about some other cool stuff. And it gives us an umbrella to produce work under potentially. There were sites like this is colossal design milk. Boom. This is back when, um, right at the waning days of people using laptops and desktops to just browse the internet, right? When, I mean, the tablet was out, you know, the the first iPad was already out at that time. And right. So anyway, uh, to make a long story, even longer, (laughs) I have this this art community for a few years and I said, okay, I want to, I want to launch a podcast underneath this banner. We're going to call it breaking walls because when you hit your creative wall, you come to us, we'll help break you through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, you know, we had a, we had an editorial calendar, a monthly editorial calendar. And the idea would be to interview you on a subject that you can expand upon, laddering up to that monthly calendar. And um, so that if somebody who is in a, you know, a slightly parallel world could get something from the, the interview shows as well. And yeah. honestly, yeah. I, I did about over a few year period, I must've done, well, I mean, I, I'm up to 122 episodes of breaking walls, but only about 50 of them are these documentaries. So, which, you know, I've done 50 documentaries on the history of radio, but right. the first 60 plus episodes are all interview shows of breaking walls, which um, I, which I found fascinating when first coming upon your show. Cause, um, I, I will I will I will say that the way I got introduced to your show was the way I get introduced to most things through the International Jack Benny Fan Club, because I believe either you posted or somebody else posted. Maybe it was Daryl, um, uh, a.k.a. Buck Benny, um, who um, introduced the concept of the show to me via the bo- via the Facebook board. And uh, for me, that was kind of revelatory to listen to how those documentaries were breaking down. But then to go back and hear then and hear how it was initially pitched, I I I was kind of like floored by like how you just grew out and evolved it based on your love of old time radio. Like that to me is interesting and to because you never know where a show's gonna go ever. Right. Like, you know, you, you start a podcast and you hope that the format that you have is one that people want to hear ever onward. But if you ever have to switch it up, like it's good to know that somebody like you made an example of how to pitch it towards your creative and uh, your creative passion for it. Because 
you're not just doing the old you're not cover, just covering the older generation of media you're now producing newer media too which yeah yeah that that kind of it all happened i wouldn't say accidentally but i i would say it would be more like you had bullet points and buoys out on the water and <laughs> you just had to get to them there was no rope attaching you know i was just floating that way and yeah, it's like you know, i think it's like the movie lifeboat they're just like kind of floating around and you're just trying to grab onto something <laughs> yeah basically and, and what you were trying to grab on there or what i was trying to grab onto was an audience honestly mm-hmm. and uh, the thing with an interview podcast is that I think there are three reasons why people would tune in the topic, the guest, or the host. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we, you know, say what you want about Joe Rogan, but there's a reason why he's got one of the most listened to podcasts. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows who all his guests are. And they generally cover topics that people are interested in. Yep. yep. If you don't, you know, so if I was going to interview you, Zach, on the show, mm-hmm. and let's say a hundred of your friends tuned into that episode, 98 of them would not tune into the next episode. Right. Yeah. So it yeah. becomes hard to 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 develop an audience without having a very specific niche bit of content that you're trying to expand upon. Right. Uh, so I, I started to because of the wall breakers, I started to get these opportunities to to do some on-site sort of narrative nonfiction NPR style reporting. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out how to become a better audio producer you know, a better sound designer, a, a better writer as, as all this was going on on the side, I was still working as a, you know, a, as an art director the whole time. Um, and I, I did an episode, episode 47 of breaking walls, which was the 70th, sorry, the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor in Manila. Yeah. Which, um, which that one for people who, who are interested now after hearing James speak about what this show is, if they go to that one, you know, like a lot of what we talk about here is historical context. Like we're not going to like, you know, give you a full on history lesson, but like the, that's a place to go to to hear how things unfolded, which I think yeah. is. I wouldn't recommend anybody go and listen to that episode, though. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I I like it, though, because I do think that there is there is this sense of reading about what happened back then versus actually kind of listening to how people reacted on site like if you listen to a world war ii re- news broadcast you'd be surprised like how much confusion they have versus where we have the benefit of hindsight and i i always kind of find that intriguing to kind of hear like the modern day equivalent of what we possess with a 24-hour news cycle is coming out at a different rate then and you only get a certain amount of commentators compared to now also i would say that uh say 80 years removed from world war ii um by going back and examining the 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 news of the day, you get a more accurate picture than you do by reading something in a history book or mm-hmm. someone else. You know, it, it's it becomes all history. Unfortunately, is like a game of telephone. After a while, you know, you start to shift the, the center point of what the truth is. Yeah, based on somebody's perspective to it, and that's just it's just the history yeah. of, of life. So it just is what it is. Bob. Yeah, absolutely, and. One of the things that you've done, and it kind of brings us into today's topic of Armis Brooks, because th- th- you have never not been a potential guest on this show, but I was trying to figure radio review out first so that I could offer you both elements, because if not, it would have been a film. But uh, you pitching Armis Brooks really touched my heart, because this is 
easily in my top five comedy properties of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would love to know what your first exposure to it is, if you could recall. Uh, let's see. I'm going back into my mind. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, don't stand there. Think, boy, think. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you'll notice uh, if, you, if you were to look at, go to, if you went to the wallbreakers.com slash breaking walls and just on my SoundCloud playlist there and just saw a list of all full length episodes of breaking walls, you would see certain patterns start to come about. Yeah. As I yeah. was, as I shifted fully into doing these history of radio documentaries, initially I was just trying to episode 75, 76, 77, or basically the birth of radio. Right. Cause you gotta go back to the beginning and kind of tell the story of what wireless telegraphy was, why it came about, etc. But anyway, in 2019, I did a, a first wave of what I call jokingly, but not really the Americana miniseries. Mm-hmm. And September's episode that year was radio and school or mm-hmm. radio and back to school, basically. So, of course, I was going to cover our Miss Brooks for back to school. Right. Uh, you know, I guess I'd, I had listened to episodes of our Miss Brooks prior to that, but I had never really gone in there and listened to it with the ear of somebody trying to write something and produce something about the show. Trying to trying to give a way to describe it to the audience or a, a way to present it to people. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, there's a, you know, I, I don't, the story of how our Miss Brooks came to be is a very nuanced and interesting one. Yeah. And it, it comes about because it's a CBS show. Mm-hmm. And at the time that our Miss Brooks launched in the summer of 1948, CBS was very much the number two network behind NBC. Yeah. Until that time, NBC had all of the biggest stars for the most part. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, I get, but oddly enough, the, the, the most popular show on all of radio was the Lux Radio Theater, and that was a CBS property. It aired Mondays at eight or nine o'clock for an hour, which anybody who doesn't know what Lux is, Lux was a 60 minute condensation of a feature film that had already been released in theaters. Right. Not everybody had access to a, a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in fact, after World War II, when the baby boom, boomer boom happens, 1947-48 uh, is the highest rated radio season in history. And that comes about because new parents are staying home with their young children, movie theater attendance bombs, and they're turning it, they're tuning into the radio. Right. Now, simultaneously, William Paley, the head of CBS, gets back from war, World War, World war II, that is, at the end of 1946, he looks at his network and goes, all right, well, we're clearly the number two here. I'm going to reorganize this whole thing. Yeah. And so I, I don't want I don't mean to stop you there, but I, I wanted to uh, I, I wanted to inquire because like something that your episode does and also um, a lot of my notes for 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 the folks out there came a lot of notes and ended up coming from the work of Martin Grams um, and his blog, which is yep. incredibly researched and detailed. And. Indeed. Paley's William Paley for uh, for an audience out there, you know, like I think that that name is known in in many circles because of how he turned around CBS by that point. And Jack Benny listeners already know the influence of William Paley because of what 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 occurred with the talent raid. And but what I found interesting and what you kind of helped clarify for me uh is not only how this show is kind of i don't want to say it's committee made but it's 
the 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 key creative that we associate with our Miss Brooks, Al Lewis, is not the instigator of the property, which is no. interesting to me because it's you just yeah, we're I'm, I seem like I'm spoiled in the sense that like the creator of the thing is obviously the creative force throughout the end of time, like Matt Groening or, you know, or Kevin Smith or whatever. And it's not the case with this at all. Right. And sometimes that does come about that way. And sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when Paley got back from the war, now, William Paley didn't start CBS from nothing, but he basically bought it as nothing in 1927. And, you know, it, it, it was there were four there were four radio networks in 1946. Yeah, there was NBC, CBS, ABC, which had originally been a, uh, an offshoot of NBC owned two networks, yeah. red and blue. Yeah. They had to divest one because of antitrust laws. The Blue Network became ABC. Mm-hmm. And there's a fourth network called the Mutual Broadcasting System, which shows like the Lone Ranger. Uh, well, maybe the Lone Ranger wasn't always on a Mutual, but the Shadow mm-hmm. was a longtime property of Mutual. Mutual does not exist anymore. They operated as a cooperative and never had the capital to move into TV. And this is why this becomes important. So Paley comes back from the war. And at this time, NBC has got all the big stars for the most part. Also, simultaneously, like ad campaigns today, the agencies, the ad agencies controlled the radio shows. Mm-hmm. They had clients, Lux Soap. Well, we're going to go pitch this show to the networks rather than the networks develop their own shows. Haley looked at it and he said, well, the only way that we're ever going to take overtake NBC is if we start creating our own shows and we're going to have to cost sustain them. What that means is they're going to have to put them on without sponsorship potentially eat the cost of this show, make really good shows, and eventually sponsors are going to sign on. They'll still do business with the agency, but they're going to be in charge of the property, basically. You're cutting out a middleman, essentially. And You are. And I I find that interesting from like the way I was able to fully understand that right away is how is understanding how Young and Rubicam worked with Jack um, during the Jell-O years and how that agency made bank because yep. of what Jack did for Jello. And so cutting out this middleman, in addition to all the other things, like I'm sure you'll touch on it, but like stars learning to incorporate themselves to cut a tax bracket, which I think is uh, th- that's that's something you learn about Jack pretty quickly. Like that, that's why amusement enterta- enterprises happened. That's why J&M productions happened. That was Correct. to cut those tax costs. And um, but as you were already alluding to, Paley's not only shifting this, he's also actively seeking a way to move into television seamlessly. Yes. Hmm. In order to move into television seamlessly, you're going to need content Mm -hmm. and you're going to need shows that people want to listen to. So when he reorganized his network, when he got back from World War II, he named Frank Stanton president and named himself chairman of the board. So he basically said, well, I'm going to be involved in the business, but Frank you handle most of that and I'm going to worry about programming because that's definitely more fun. And by the way, we have no business without good programming. So I'm going to do this thing because this is what I want to do. And it's my network. Look, look, Frank, you're fucking Roy and I'm Walt deal with it. Right. And you know what? Not everybody is a creative. They're really not. Yeah. Uh, And and he had that rare talent Paley to be both a generally a creative minded thinker Mm -hmm. Just minded thinker. So, you know, he, he made the right decision. Yeah. So it does bring us to our Miss Brooks and how it came, how it came to be. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned on Mondays, the Lux radio theater is CBS's highest rated show. And it's the one night of the week at that point in time 
that CBS is clearly the, in the ratings lead for Mondays. Yeah. Tuesday nights was NBC's comedy night. That was Fibber McGee, Bob Hope, Red Skelton, uh, Ozzie and Harriet. Uh, Sunday night was Jack Benny, Edgar Burt. So, but Monday night was CBS owned the ratings. Yeah. So they yep. developed a show called My Friend Irma, mm-hmm. starring Marie Williams, and Kathy uh, Marie Lewis. Wilson, yeah. Uh, Marie Wilson, Kathy Lewis, with a, a whole host of uh, you know Hans Conry was in it. Uh, um, John Brown was in it. Uh, you know, just uh, you know the people that you're used to hearing. Yeah, um, yeah. John John Brown's Marie. still Digger Odell for me for all right. time. But I do, you know, I I I do love him on My Friend Irma, but it's right. it's, so, it's just hard. So, <laughs> Irma, Irma is a, a female protagonist, uh, really two female protagonists who carry the show. Irma is sort of, she's a simple-minded, buxom, blonde stenographer with a heart of gold. And mm-hmm. Lewis is kind of her best friend who's not necessarily cynical, but more, more of a realist. She's a and little bit more aware, the- too. <laughs> right, right. And now, so now this show in 1947 had a rating of, uh, I think, 28.3 for the season. So that suddenly became another top 10 show on the air. Mm-hmm. So that's 1947-48. And like a, you know, think of it as a, a school year. When the rating season comes to an end in June, now you have a summer session. Yeah. So yeah. A lot, shows were basically on the air for one of four kinds of periods. 13 weeks, 26 weeks, 39 weeks, or 52 weeks mm-hmm. in three-month increments. Lux Radio Theater ran for 39 weeks and took a, a hiatus in the summer. They needed to fill the time with something. So in July of 1948, two new female-driven protagonist shows came to the air the exact same week. Our Miss Brooks and My Favorite Husband, which became I Love Lucy on CBS TV yeah. a few years later. Yeah, Both yeah. of those shows launched at the same time. Interestingly enough, both Lucille Ball and Eve Arden were somewhat similarly typecast in roles in TV and uh, I'm sorry, not TV in film and, you know, guest appearances on radio prior to that and kind of, you know, became leading ladies because of these shows. Yeah. And uh, Eve Arden in particular, you know, you were talking about their similar trajectory path because they don't, they don't start out as comedians. Um, The, the balls story is very well known. Um, and in fact, when you watch some of her earlier RKO work, um, even in comedies, she's not get, like, uh, look who's laughing and here we go again. Like they don't they don't like really capitalize on her as a comic presence because those movies belong to Jim and Marion Jordan and Bergen and McCarthy um, and Hal and Hal Perry, obviously. And um, so when I look at Eve Arden, there are two things that come to mind prior to Armis Brooks for her. It's at the circus. Which mm-hmm. then I try to forget it pretty quickly, um, <laughs> and then uh, Mildred Pierce, for which she right. gets an Oscar nomination for. Um, right. Fantastic in Mildred Pierce, she is. And but uh, which, by the way, your when you were playing those interviews, I didn't realize she had a hard time watching herself on screen. That mm-hmm. that really blew blew me away. I don't. Uh, maybe it's. I'm I'm like genuinely awestruck by Eve Arden as a performer because of our Miss Brooks to, to hear her say, like, I just couldn't bear to look at myself. Just like, that's funny because I could stare at you for hours because you're just so wonderfully entertaining. Um, and, you know, this is a woman who started off on the stage, made her way into film and radio and particularly this role for her 
You know, like she had to be she had to be coaxed into it because it wasn't like it's because she was first of all, she wasn't the first choice. We should get that out of the way. Shirley Booth was um, attached to this property prior and Shirley Booth, who was Miss Duffy on on Duffy's Tavern and um, had other roles within that nature of a Brooklyn accent, uh, was the initial Armis Brooks. And Mm -hmm. to then switch from her to Eve Arden, like right like to, today, I look at it. Eve Arden is the clearest choice, but you know, in listening to the Shirley Booth episodes, like I could see what they could possibly do with it, but it's not the same. Like it just doesn't feel. You don't get the same. I don't get the same warm glow that I get from what Eve Arden did with it. Sure. Well, so and there's a reason why Arden. You're, you're touching on it. Arden did not want to be involved with this for a few reasons. One, so she was on, she, Danny Kay had a show for one season on radio in 1945 that Arden was, was a co-star on. I'm sorry. Do you mean, I had some funny moments. They programmed it on Saturday night, which was radio's lowest rated, you know, night of the week. And then they moved it to Friday, which is also a very low rated night of the week. Cause it's, you know, date night, going out night. People are, people just do stuff on weekends. Especially when, you know, if you're a man or a woman at that time, oh, my uh, my fiance's back from the war. I think I'm good. We're going to go out Friday night. You know, like, <laughs> I, think, I think I'd like to go do something. Um, Get so, here, you, you hunk know, of a man. Right, and uh, so, you know, that show got canceled after one season. She then took Joan Davis's place on the Seal Test Village store. Joan Davis was the comedian on the show. She went to uh, have her own show after that. Yep. And we talked Brady about her Bob. on a previous episode with show business, her uh, film with Eddie Cantor. Um, mm-hmm. Learning about her was very interesting too. And speaking of very, women, yes. women very. in powerful roles. <laughs> yep. Uh, but you know, Arden was not at that point, the kind of comedian that she was as in Joan Davis and the seal tests ratings kept dropping uh, as then male co-stars changed. Jack Haley was her original one. Jack Haley, famously known as the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. He left. Jack Carson came on. They both left. And she basically, at that point, was done with radio. Mm-hmm. Now, simultaneously, as CBS is trying to get what became our Miss Brooks together, it was originally called uh, Meet Miss Brooks. Then it was called Our Miss Booth. Mm-hmm. Shirley Booth did not want to be involved with the property because she just didn't think it was very good. So they gave Eva Arden the script and she agreed. She didn't think it was very good either. So this is where Al Lewis comes in. And by the way, this is not Grandpa Munster. It's a different Al Lewis. Yes. Good clarifier, because he's the Al Lewis, uh, the the Al Lewis here. We're talking about, you know, I'll be I'll be frank, James. It was hard finding much info on him. Like there's nobody's written a definitive biography that I'm aware of of Al Lewis's work. And I I think that's a shame, to be honest, because he's the he's the bible like he's the bible of armis brooks you know the the amount of control he gained over this show pro- after joining on board he's the one he he gets the movie made like that's that's something incredible for a per- one person to have that much influence over a show in that nature to me it's similar to how the the structure as it kind of existed with harry con and jack um, before their dissolution. Um, sure. And I'm curious from you, like, uh, because J- I-, I couldn't remember if Joe Quillen 
was on for a little bit and then left or if he was there for a good period of time before Al Lewis was kind of like more of the full force. Well, I think, you know, you were alluding to it earlier about sometimes a show is a show by committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then over time, somebody kind of takes over as the leading voice behind the scenes. Um, Maybe, maybe part of the reason why Al Lewis's legacy is not more well-defined is that simply because there was another Al Lewis that came along in the entertainment industry that was grandpa Munster car 54. Where are you? I mean, the first time I ever saw Al Lewis's name attached to it, I thought, wow, grandpa Munster was directing radio shows. Like, (laughs) but it turns out no, because that Al Lewis is like 15 years younger and he only came out basically in the television era. It would be Um, amazing if it was the same. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I I would be, it would be say what, you know, somebody we already knew was talented. It turns out that he was even more talented. Yeah. Unfortunately not the case, but, uh, if you want to think about Al Lewis, his, you know, a peer of his really would be Jess Oppenheimer, who was the driving force behind I Love Lucy, because my favorite husband was Lucy, was the I Love Lucy forerunner, and our Miss Brooks and my favorite husband literally debuted the same week on CBS. Yeah. Um, so so I, we're kind of going all over the place a little bit here, but to say this, our Miss Brooks ran for six weeks when Colgate signed on as sponsor and they moved the series and it started its fall season with this weekend at Crystal Lake episode. This is the first episode of the fall season. The first time, you know, that it's really a a rated series that people are trying to, you know, it's, it's now on now. Now we need this thing to turn a profit. We we got it to the point where we got a sponsor. Now, you know, let's, let's make something out of it. Yeah. And something that we, Something that was discussed on this show when we talked about the Mel Blanc show, um, and I, I, if if I'd love to know what you think about this, is that when we were talking about the Mel Blanc show, which was also sponsored by Colgate, Colgate Palmolive Pete, uh, that show only lasts a very limited amount of time, and it's coming in a sway of similar-minded programming uh, with the sitcom format intact, um, and the amount of programs that are similar to Mel Blanc's show with the exception being that you have Mel Blanc uh, is kind of amazing to look at. And then two years after Mel's show ends, you get something like Armist Brooks, which really as a sitcom really deviates from a lot of norms. This isn't about a married couple. This isn't about a bumbling dad. This isn't even about this to bring back to my friend Irma. This isn't about a ditzy blonde. This is about a very capable, strong-willed woman, albeit who has, you know, a a, a pining for one Philip Boynton. But it doesn't even even as that is a goal. I don't think it. I don't think her chasing after Boynton is a a definition of her character. This show is radical by a lot of perspective. If you were to look at what radio was, so. Something to keep in mind for me is that this is this is a crux point of watching the evolutionary period of not just radio, but really sitcom and comedy starting to form. And I don't think you could have asked for a better cast to support Eve Arden in this. Like this is kind of like one of the most perfect casts in in radio history. Um, you know, I I will never not be giddy with all glee 
to tell people who love a Rambo movie. Did you know <laughs> that Richard Crenna, before he was bossing around John, <laughs> was a squeaky, nerdy teenager? <laughs> um, which, you know, I love him on TV, but it's so much better on radio for, for Walter Denton. Um, that character is just, it's something else. It's, it, your mind can go in several directions, whether it's his car or the different schemes he's getting into or him working with inventions. Um, you have Jane Morgan as Mrs. Davis, who is frankly the forebearer of the health food craze <laughs> because of her. Yeah. Yeah. Boiled pine needles comes up in this episode. And I'm like, that sounds like something we'd sell at Whole Foods. And, right. <laughs> um, and Gloria McMillan, who is still with us um, as Harriet Conklin. Um, Correct. She's still with us. Yeah. And she and her interviews and talking about how the show became a blessing for her and the consistency that she got out of it is incredible. Um, but to bring it back to Jane Morgan for a second, Jane Morgan lived quite a life through radio, vaudeville, television, and and the, the and the big stage. Um, and yet, I think wonderfully, albeit tragically, like with a lot of older actresses and even actors that come into the radio forte or the television forte, it's easy to forget uh, that they had a life prior to that on the stage where whether big or small, they, by the time they get to this point, you don't need to second guess as to why they're so perfect at what they're doing. Um, I always look to uh, Margaret Dumont as an example of that before she goes into a Marx brothers movie. She's a trained actress who understands all the different game of the drama. That's why she knew what was going on. And she wasn't clueless. Like the rumor that Groucho really reinforced was presupposed. Um, but I, uh, the other one where we're kind of beating around the bush here is, um, everybody's favorite blowhard, Gail Gordon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now we have a luxury, you and I of a certain era, um, where between the eighties and the nineties kids, we had the last bastion of some of these older actors still working before they left us so that we would have a connective tissue. Richard right. Crenna, obviously as, uh, as Colonel Troutman, but Gail Gordon is Walter Selznick in, um, uh, in the burbs. And that is a film that still permeates the pop culture, whether it's because of Joe Dante, Tom Hanks, any of the different factors involved. Um, I mean, heck he's the guy we're trying to figure out if he's dead or not. <laughs> and, uh, but Gail Gordon in particular to me, is the ingredient where when you listen to the pilot that Arden eventually recorded, it's it's night and day from listening to that versus this episode that we're talking about when it comes to Mr. Conklin. Mr. Conklin yeah. needs that slow burn. It is it is one of those things that radio does so well to hear him address something, acknowledge it, turn around. Beat, beat, beat. What? <laughs> like that reaction and that delivery is just perfect. Um, yeah. Now, and you were, we were talking about my, my favorite husband. And he's on both shows. Mm -hmm. And he was, I mean, most people, if they know Gail Gordon, 
uh, from any era, if they are a Lucille Ball fan, they've seen Gail Gordon all around Lucy's life. Yep. Like they loved working together. He respected her to the ends of the earth. Um, you know, even he was he wasn't on I Love Lucy as much, but here's Lucy and the Lucy show is where well, you get it. He's not on I Love Lucy because he was supposed to be Fred Mertz, but he couldn't be Fred Mertz because he was too busy playing Osgood Conklin to be Fred Mertz. Yeah. And so that role went to William Frawley, which, in my opinion, I think if we're going to talk about I Love Lucy just for a moment. Yeah, sure. William Frawley makes I Love Lucy. As much as Lucille Ball is fantastic, it's William Frawley who has some of the, the very, <laughs> very best lines on that show and the best expressions. And it goes back to the same thing. Stage actor, vaudeville actor, early film actor. And I think there, you know, I, I think there's like three, three generations of radio people from the golden age. Mm-hmm. I think there's the people who are born like the 1890s and the beginning of the 1900s, the Fred Allen's, the Jack Benny's yeah. people who own their craft on the vaudeville stage. Then there's the next generation, which is like the Sinatra's and the Orson Welles's and Sinatra had a way bigger I'm on the radio and I don't mean in music career than people realize. Sinatra yeah. was all over radio yeah. as a young man. And him and him and Orson Welles are the same age. They're both born in 1915. And then there's the final generation, which is like Johnny Carson, Rod Serling, like the people who were just a little too young for the golden age, but not really, but kind of really like they're they weren't very, on the radio, but they were in radio locally and then got the TV type thing. They're they're raised on radio while working in radio. They're 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 right. they're dual, they're having a dual perspective. Right. Um and uh you know, I, I love that you broke it down that way too, because I think that is essential because there is a time when the, you know, like that that emergence out of vaudeville going into radio in particular, um, you have it's similar to sound film. You have a lot of entertainers putting the nail in the coffin on their own careers while at the same time, others are finding a way to adapt into the medium via their own vicarious talents. You know, Fred Allen's Fred Allen's particular uh, shticks in vaudeville, you know, like don't end up transitioning so much as his natural a bit uh, ability with wit. And you have uh, Burns and Allen uh, carrying over much of their stage act into that and then redeveloping it for that sitcom format. And with Jack, well, we know that that's an evolution that starts with the fiddle that that goes into those monologist routines to the suave MC. And, you know, I think that what you have in Armis Brooks is actually like a best of all those kind of worlds because you have an emerging generation in each pocket. And uh, I think that another element of this, too, is that we're, we're we also have a movie star here. <laughs> Uh, Jeff Chandler. Um, yes. Who was, there were two Mr. Boyntons. There was Jeff Chandler first, and then Bob Rockwell came on afterward. Um, and Bob Rockwell made the move to television. And, yeah. <clears throat> oh, no, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Well, I, I wanted to say something else that you, you know, touch on something that you started earlier. And oh, yeah. why, why this show is so important. Um, and why I think it's more important than my favorite husband and, and, in some ways, I love Lucy and also my friend Irma. It's that Connie Brooks is a working 30-something-year-old single lady who is the aggressor in pursuing the, the man that she wants. Mm-hmm. He's the alpha of the two. Uh, you know, I mean, he's almost so beta that he's, <laughs> he's Delta Gamma, you know. like you know. Nobody's, nobody's saying it out loud, but Jim Cummings' movie, The Beta Test, is all about Philip Boynton. <laughs> I mean, 
and and she is you know she's quick-witted which all it all comes out of her other work i mean imagine you know her role in mildred pierce but as a sharp comedy you know it's kind of like those kinds of nasty one-liners become funny one-liners and yeah uh, it's softened up version of it yeah and her deadpan her deadpan she 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 has a good deadpan delivery yeah, and, and there's, I mean, I, I mean, Weekend at Crystal Lake is such a great season debut. Uh, I mean, there's so many elements when 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 he she when uh, she's at lunch with Boynton, and he says, "But but but," and she said, "Check your motorboat, Mister." You know, <laughs> these little lines are, you know, uh, let's let's hope we don't all make a bunch of yikes out of ourselves. You know, and of, course, no, of course, those lines are being written for her, but they're written for her with her in mind. You know, yeah. you were writing for. What would Eve Arden say? Yeah. And of course, part of the reason why this works is that Eve Arden is lovely and beautiful in real life and smart and and kind of all she embodies many of the same characteristics in who she really was as Connie Brooks in general, you know. So let's be frank. Philip Boynton's a fool. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean he's he's just, you know, BT bashful type. You know, yep. that's what it is. He, he wants her just as bad. He just doesn't have the courage to make a move. So. Yeah, yeah. He he consoles McDougal at night with his problems, and McDougal with his problems, and they they just they they drink and or eat flies together like this. The the and you're right. There is an innovation to that, and another element of it too. And you know, hey guys, this is the lesson part of the show. Hooray! You know, I know you all love that. Um, making a human out of a school teacher. That's not an easy job because and that, was, that was new at the time. Yeah. When we're kids, we don't think of our teachers as people. <laughs> and although uh, although I'd like to think that much of many of us do nowadays, but like that, that's an archetype that existed as the stern school teacher or, you know, the school marm. Uh, you know, somebody who's relegated to an old maid kind of role by the end of her life. This is, this is a trope that is thrown right out the door with, let's be honest, a sexual energy attached to our Miss Brooks. He does. And, and it shows in the, in this, when he says to her now, if when um, he meaning Osgood Conklin says to her in, in Conklin's office, it wouldn't be a big deal if you were engaged, but, and she says, well, how's one supposed to fraternize at one or, that's one more than of, one. That's none not, of my business, Miss Brooks. Right, right. So you know, just you know, get a hideaway, and he, he, he says, "I certainly didn't mean that." You know, <laughs> you know, but what, what is the influence there? You know, what is a, what does a hideaway lead to? Sexual activity. You know? Yeah. Uh, which I mean, clearly, uh, I mean, you read anybody's, um, you know, more modern retrospective on what life was like between 1900 and 1950. People were having sex before marriage as much as people are having sex before marriage now. What? Just, oh, hold on, hold on, wait, wait. Are you telling right. me that people banged right. before? Right. <laughs> exactly. So you know, but you just couldn't come out and say it in, mm-hmm. in media. But after World War II, that started to change a little bit, and I think there are things about the radio that, uh, um, you know, are akin to pre-code Hollywood. In that, I mean, as a, as an aside here, yeah. Gunsmoke on radio is completely different from Gunsmoke on television. And in my opinion, no TV Western was as gritty as Gunsmoke until, I'm talking about TV shows, until Deadwood. Mm-hmm. And Deadwood is HBO 2004. Yeah. Gunsmoke 
went on radio in 1952 because you could do things on radio without having to show them both from a um, uh, visual effects point of view as an, as an audio point of view or an influence that you don't have to show. In Gunsmoke, it's obvious that Miss Kitty is a prostitute and Matt Dillon sleeps with her, but it's only inferred, it's never said. You know. Yep, it's, it's, so, it's the innuendo that you have to work around, whether in film or radio, quite frankly. The censor board on the radio uh, falls in line with similar practices of the Hayes Code and the Breen office. Right. And, and I, I, I love that you bring that up too, because this show, even as it moves into the mid fifties, it still carries plenty of those overtones and it is unafraid to do so. Yeah. And, and I think some of that, I mean, you know, Marie Wilson and my friend Irma comes across as ditzy and they can, and she's considered to be a buxom, a buxom blonde stenographer, but her, her personality is in no way sexual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's no, it's just a good-hearted, simple woman. Yeah, it's you not. Know, it's just, there's no like, there's no promiscuity attached to. No, Irma. no, and that's and that in that case is male-driven. We sexualize her because she's a sexy, ditzy blonde. Mm-hmm. In this case, much like we're we're continuing to to hit on here, Connie Brooks is the one who's in charge of her own. Um, you know, I, I guess I guess the word would be agency here. She has agency over her own life. Yeah. And if, yeah. if you look at, you know, um, Eve Arden in general, she's tall, she's lean, she's sharp featured. And that works for this characterization here from a visual point of view, but also works obviously on radio. And um, I mean, when she says find a hideaway. Yes, men in the audience are laughing, but the women in the audience are really laughing because mm. It's empowering for a woman in 1948 to hear another woman talk so frankly on a public media. That's yeah, a comedy yeah. that's sanctioned, you know, and, and Paley was a genius for this in some ways. And he, it's of course, he's not, he's the genius because his name is on the door. So, you know, yeah. there's a million yeah. people who work for him. But, it, I mean, even when they were doing, you know, we're, we keep going to Isle of Lucy, but for years to help. I mean, this will be obvious to a certain degree in the in the the forthcoming biopic film on Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz that's uh, currently in development. Yeah. But uh, she wanted to help, you know, save her marriage and she wanted to work with her husband. She felt that Desi was, you know, way more talented than he was getting credit for as as terms of comedic acting and acting in general. But nobody would believe that she was married to a Cuban as this like redhead from, from Western upstate New York. And eventually William Paley goes, well, you know, they have been married for 10 years in real life. Maybe the friggin' audience will believe it. You know, like, screw it. Green light the show. You know, if she wants to, we want her. So let's let's try it, you know. And you, you, just, I mean, you just imagine Bill Paley in his office looking at that scenario going like, guys, um, uh, I've got I've seen a copy of their marriage certificate. They've been married for, for about for a couple of years now. I, I don't think this is out of believability because also people can read a newspaper. So <laughs> it's yeah, not that that trade wasn't uh, announced. <laughs> like, right. And, and Paley was a risk taker in general. I think when you're number two, that's why you're a risk taker. You know, you, you have to have courage mm-hmm. and smarts. And so, uh, you know, David Sarnoff would have never okayed our Miss Brooks. David Sarnoff was head of RCA which ran NBC and those of the listeners who know any, who are, you know, from Jack Benny fans, there's a reason why CBS became the number two, 
went from number two network to the number one network. The first reason is that Paley helped greenlight all of these good dramatic shows that started to get traction. And the second reason was the tax code that Paley said, yeah, you know, Jack Benny, I'll sign on that dotted line for that. Yeah. You know, uh, Amos and Andy, you know, well, Amos and Andy were actually the first. That's sort of what gets thrown under the rug here. Yeah. Of Amos and Andy, you know, the way they're characterized today as being, uh, it doesn't age well. Basically, we've talked about that before, you know, and, and, and they will be discussed on a uh, value. I, I didn't mean to cut you off, like, but, you know, you bringing up Amos and Andy is essential because for all the problems that we have with it, it it's undeniable how popular that show was. And amongst all Americans, mm. not, you know, it, it, we look at it today and say this is ignorant, but the people of the day did. I mean, I'm sure there were pockets of people who felt that way. And this is once again. The, yeah. the, what yeah. I said at the beginning, telephone history, but also ratings don't lie. <laughs> yeah, it was it was the most popular show for, for years and years or one of the most popular show, you know, so people were clearly listening. Um, but that aside, but but, you know, um, to get it to the point that I'm trying to make here is when Paley cuts these deals, Jack Benny, Amos and Andy, they incorporate their their own themselves as businesses to take advantage of a tax code so that they don't get absolutely creamed with tax revenue, which with taxes, which I think at the time it was, you owed the government 70% of all income over $70,000 in 1949, which basically it's a inflation rate being what it is. It's about a one to 10. So if you made 700 grand, if you made anything more than 700 grand at the time as a human being living in the United States of America, you owed the government 70% of all tax dollars over $700,000, which of course there's the outsider who says, well, be happy with 700 grand. It's like, yeah, but if you're making that money, you want to hold on to some of that money. And you know, mm -hmm. so how can you do it? Well, you can incorporate as a business and sell your show to the network. Yeah. Starting off of, of RCA slash NBC said, no way, nobody should be given that much money, that power, of course, you know, other than himself. Mm -hmm. Haley says, yeah, I'll make that deal. And he makes the deal. And, you know, we're simplifying this. But all of these shows then move over and suddenly CBS is a monster powerhouse because they had all these really good scripted shows. And then they took all of the talent that NBC had. So in a one year period, CBS goes from the number two network to far and ahead the number one network just as television comes out. Right. And that was a key thing that you brought up in your um, your, your Brooks episode in particular before we move into kind of more of the machinations of the plot of this episode. I will say that something that I found interesting was not to say that I didn't realize that this existed, but I guess it's you need to hear it out loud is Paley eventually also got a loan, um, a, a loan, a loan put out to make sure that they had the financial resources available to move into television because television Correct. is is a gamble still, even though it's the emerging market that's about to unfold. You know, it's still a gamble like any property that you have or, or, or me, mode of entertainment that you have like sound films was a gamble like sam warner made a gamble with a jazz singer um or even don juan with which was all sound effects and with television you know it's interesting to see like cbs which is you know we could joke about what cbs is today as the old people's network or the the home of the big bang theory but the bottom line is is that 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 studio and that network still exist as a powerhouse in several respects and forms. Agreed. And, and that starts with this gamble by Paley. Right. And as I mentioned right at the beginning, there were four 
radio networks at the time. Mm. When I say mutual broadcasting system, anybody under 45 goes, what? And that's because mutual was a cooperative, not a, not a, not a corporation. They never had the capital to move into television. Mm. At the same time, there was a fourth television network that's no longer in existence, the Dumont network. Mm-hmm. If, if another TV network is going to start, well, the people who are already running the, the media networks, in this case, radio, i.e. ABC, CBS, and NBC, they're looking at that going, well, we better get into this medium or we're going to get put out of business, which had they not had the capital to move into television, they might have very well, you know, gone out of business yeah. at some point. But we, of course, that's rewriting history. But, you know, to, to take it back for a second. Um, so after Jack Benny moves to CBS uh, in January of 1949, that fall, uh, Benny's, Benny was on 7 p.m. Eastern time, Sundays at 7. Yeah. Our Miss Brooks got programmed to be the lead-in at 6.30. Mm-hmm. And that says something. They're going to put a show on before Benny that they want to highlight. Yeah. And like, uh, 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 the, uh, the, the thing that you also hear in a lot of episodes of our Miss Brooks to connect to that is there's a lot of Jack Benny jokes that are written in, especially knowing that they're the lead in program. Yes. And, and, and I think it, it, it so just to, to tie a, a quick bow on this 48, 49 hour Miss Brooks season that weekend, the crystal Lake is the first um, episode of. Mm-hmm. which is a 39 episode, 39 week run uh, by December. The show's rating was up to 16.4, which it's kind of, you know, really difficult to equate ratings today with ratings then, but a 16.4 rating uh, would probably be roughly 20 million people tuning in, which is incredible considering the amount of programming that there is obviously not by comparison to what we have content wise today in the, in the realm of selection and uh, quantity. And, you know, when you look at these ratings, these, these ratings from the past, what you find is that the, the world is kind of on a similar wavelength in a way that is, is, I don't think it's impossible to measure today metrically, but it, 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 the culture is different. We're 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 communally getting around the same box, the same piece of furniture and listening to one of three options with other options contained within each option. So one network has all these shows another network has all these shows. And it's an indicator of what people wanted uh, in a way that's easier, I guess, to define. Yeah, no, I, I will say that in in some way, it's still a lot like. um uh, let's, I mean, for anybody who's over 30, just think about television choices in the 1990s when cable was already, uh, you know, in most people's homes. Uh, yes, you have the four major networks, but, you know, you still have other local radio stations that are not affiliated to any larger network. Uh, so if you were tuning your dial, you you might be able to listen to 10, 12, 15 different stations, but clearly the affiliated network, you know, the stations affiliated with networks, uh, for example, uh, CBS's flagship in New York was WCBS. Their flagship in California, or at least Southern California, was uh, KNX. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I and think in San Francisco was KCBS. Um, uh, so, you know, that was that would be your station that you're tuning into. We don't think of like local 
call sign affiliates really anymore, but, uh, no, we, we have them technically. If you still listen to them on the radio, we still have uh 850 KOA out here in Denver. Um, and we, we, we have KNUS, but it's become a kind of a different format. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that was, and for, for me, that was where I was able to hear when radio was with Stan Freeberg, because that's where that syndicated program was placed into this market. Right. And, um, and KOA, KOA's history is not what it was when it started, obviously, because of the vast around amount of radio that was being produced at that time. But that's where we get the introductions of people like Don Wilson and Frank Nelson out here in Den in Denver. Yeah. And um and I think that with all that you've given us in terms of that information, you know, the to me the the one of the key things that we touched on though that is one of the most important those in the idea of humanizing a school teacher too in giving her a sexual life and giving her agency in her own story and not having her being her identity isn't defined by Mr. Boynton. Although it is one of those things that we as the audience would like to see blossom to the point where when that film comes out, one of the reasons why I think it works is that yes, she's having those dreams of the white picket fence house uh, that keep popping in and out. But you have learned at this point to love Mix Brooks so much that that doesn't feel aged at all. I think we, any of us have that kind of a dream for anybody we want to be with, you know? Like, Yeah, yeah. And But also, if you go back to the Weekend at Crystal Lake episode and so many of the early episodes, I mean, all of her dreams are basically wet dreams. They're not, <laughs> Yes, I'm married to this man and it's so lovely. It's get over here, baby, right now, you know? Uh, sexual frustration type dreams, you know, he has, the, he has you know, a line at the beginning of like, Miss Brooks, I have decided to throw uh, Constance. I've decided to throw caution to the wind. May I call you Constance? <laughs> <laughs> Even in her dreams, he's still bashful. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's a, when, when Mrs. Davis wakes her up and she's basically like, why, you know, you must be very warm. You're so wrapped in those blankets, you know, like, like the, those, you know, this little innuendo type lines that uh, make it work. You're bringing up a very key thing within what we've talked about with this liberation and this delving into the uh, delving into the sex life of somebody on radio, which the the only the only comparison that I had growing up probably within radio would have been Phil Harris's love life uh, prior to meeting Alice um, or and even some elements of his marriage to Alice, um, or the um, uh, the the inexplicable horniness of Charlie Charlie McCarthy, <laughs> um, right. which um, uh, the it's not only her that has amorous feelings. Mister Conklin really really wants alone alone time with oh, Mrs. In, Conklin. In this episode, yeah, mm-hmm. he says, "I was listening to this the first time." He said. Come here, baby. Come I laugh so hard because <laughs> it just comes out of nowhere. You know, it's just like you're not expecting it. And his delivery is so good. Aroused uh, Gail Gordon is yeah, ar- te- technically something you don't need to hear. But aren't no. you glad it's here? <laughs> once, once, uh, you know, once um, uh, Walt, uh, sorry, uh, Walter Denton shows up and, and Mrs. Conklin's like, oh, no, we'll have to sleep in different beds now. And he's like, what? This is crazy. It's our anniversary. I don't care. You know, like we're married. You know, we can't even go into the house together. Like, what are we talking about here? Yeah. You know, uh, and there's a there's a also something for early th- this early on in the run 
Walter Denton is not as smitten with Harriet Conklin as he'll end or as he'll end up being. Walter Denton is like, she's always chasing me. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I love his goofy laugh where he's like, she she's in love, in love. <laughs> like, yeah, and he says, I must be hero worship. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good Richard Crenna. I like that. <laughs> There's it's she and by the way, also, let's address this for fandom's sake. How has Walter's car survived all these years? <laughs> this, is the, this is the most beat up hunk of junk you'll ever hear apart from the Maxwell. <laughs> right, yeah. And, uh, I mean, uh, when, when the, there's the line about, you know, we were all riding on the top but and all the girls were inside, but we could you could have been hurt. Well, the ladies are, they're soft. <laughs> you know, it's, of course, everybody loves this stuff because, you know, they're inferring stuff that everybody gets and everybody loves it. And, you know, I think part of the other reason um, I was thinking about this a second ago, when Miss Brooks comes about at a time after World War II, when all of these American men were, you know, and women, too, you know, were clearly overseas, but Mm -hmm. men were overseas and somebody had to go to work here in this country and women went to work. And, and, And now I'm not a World War I historian by any means, but our involvement as a United States of America in world war one was much more abbreviated than world war two. Yes. We basically went there to help end that war mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, I, I mean, that's I, the, let's the, just the, say the, that I'm the, not the Eastern uh, European conflicts that instigate world war one are far too complicated to ever get into in a podcast about a school teacher. Correct. <laughs> yes. But if you want to know how the U S got in there, look up the Zimmerman note either or, way or watch uh, war horse. I don't care. <laughs> right. but, but the point being that I, I'm, I'm not as familiar with women's involvement in American day-to-day business during world one as world war two. Mm-hmm. And all of these young women of young adult age, 20, you know, 18 to 35 go to work, from 1941 to 1945. And when the war is over, they're not saying, okay, I'm going to go back to being the happy homemaker now. And all of you can decide what happens. For example, in World War I, women didn't have the right to vote until shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. During World War II, women certainly do. So when the men come back home, suddenly women are saying, no, I don't want to stay home. And that's, uh, you know, we keep bringing up Isla Lucy again, but that's some of, uh, of Lucy Ricardo's plight during that show. She's the happy homemaker and she doesn't want to be. Yeah. And she's kind of bored and constantly getting herself into trouble, trying to do something, you know, but she is in some ways an empowered character and in other ways, not quite so because, well, I mean, she's just not a single lady like, like Connie Brooks is. So yeah, she, you know. Connie, Connie's allowed more agency and the way the two characters are written, they're going in two different directions. And part of that obviously is not even strictly for writing's sake. It's strictly based on the ability of each comic because Eve Arden can play into that more sardonic wit and Lucy is broad. It's beautiful, but it's broad. And, you know, and I think that's a good distinction to make. And it, it helps you appreciate both from in that perspective. And I love that you bring up the fact that there is this sudden like, no, no, I'm not. What wh- I, w- I helped you fuckers win the war by, you know, flushing rivets. Like, no, I, I, right. I Rosie proved the my, is a real thing. I proved my fucking worth. What the hell? And to have a female centered show who it, where it's about a woman in a career. That's the other element of this that like 
you know, we we take that for granted with something like Murphy Brown that comes in the 90s. We take that for granted with, you know, with Leslie Nope and Parks and Rec. We take that for granted because we never some of us lived within a concept where that was possible at this time. This is this is very out of the ordinary. And I think that that bears the bear makes it a forebearer in a lot of ways to the things we appreciate about television today when it's written well and we get a long lasting show with a female center female centered plot or a female character who's driving the plot that that starts at something like our miss brooks like we don't get that without this agreed and and you know uh life in the in the world and in developed countries and specifically the United States of America was drastically changing coming out of world war two women, what would become the women's liberation movement. And I, I don't want to speak to that because I'll just immediately make myself ignorant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, clearly it was going on prior to that, but it gains steam civil rights movement. The same thing is happening when we, you know, yeah. we yeah. died for you. I'm certainly not a second class citizen. And that's said by an African American man or woman, or, a, you know, a, a woman in general in this country. We are in no way second class citizens and we're not going to go back to acting like that. Yeah. So, you know, in, in some ways, uh, Miss Brooks is is she's a, you know, a groundbreaking character. And, and I mean, there's a reason why in March of 1949, audiences voted her radio's top comedian, uh, why she was getting awards from, you know, uh, teachers associations and things like that. Thank you for bringing that up because that's one of the most amazing parts of this show and this story. (laughs) Yeah, she's not a teacher, but she's getting, you know, she was an honorary member of the National Education Association. She won an award for the Teachers College of Connecticut's Alumni Association, specifically for humanizing the American teacher. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say this, and I I say this on, on the episode of Breaking Walls, episode 106, Summer Vacation Without Ms. Brooks, Mm-hmm. Exclusively now on iTunes, Stitcher, <laughs> Spotify, <laughs> anywhere that you want to get a podcast for free. I need to say that now too because suddenly podcasts are not always for free. But uh, <laughs> my favorite husband is was never ever a hit, both with audiences and clearly in ratings, the size of our Miss Brooks. It mm-hmm. never was. If I Love Lucy didn't hit the way it did, we would remember Lucille Ball completely differently. In fact, we might not really remember her nearly as much as Eve Arden, which, you know, it's almost, Eve Arden is totally remembered, you know, and and if you watch Grease, she plays the principal on Grease, basically playing Connie Brooks as an older woman. It's a spoof yeah. on Connie Brooks, yeah. at, on, on, you know, Matt uh, Rydell High. Um, but, you know, Our Miss Brooks was in 1949, a much bigger hit than My Favorite Husband. Yeah, it really, so, it really captured people. There is a there the 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 forty nine poll naming it naming her best comedian I think is is the exemplar of that and as you said Eve Arden's not forgotten um, I do think that the generation that grew up with her with Greece is always going to remember her as Principal McGee but you know what's kind of one what no it's not kind of what is wonderful about watching something like Greece. And being a fan of Greece, it will compel you to look at a cast list. It will compel you to learn more. And if you are really into Greece and you start looking into the work of Eve Arden, you will fall into Armas Brooks. You'll see why they would cast her in this, why she would be a part of this legacy. And 
I think to me, like the big thing that Armis Brooks does in addition to having this full-fledged female-driven plot that carries such weight and warmth is that to address the the dire straits in which education is treated in this country if somebody if i were to take somebody in a current high school class right now and sit them down with an episode of armis brooks I wouldn't be surprised if somebody told me that that still happens whenever they talk about something not being at their school or not being able to afford something for their school. Of course. When you listen to the disparities between them and Clay City High or Clay City High not having something that Madison has, the flippity flop of it all, um, the, the, the amount of revelation when you listen to that show is these problems with education in this country, specifically with the public school systems, whether it's financial, uh, whether it's social, these things were there. These things were being fought for. There are ads uh, that you either can hear through Armis Brooks radio shows from Armed Forces rebroadcasts or other programs of the era where there is a plea for treating school teachers with respect. And to live in a world where we are still fighting for that is insane to think about. It's insane. Like the more you peel back the fifties in particular, the more you realize I love happy days, but it's bullshit. <laughs> you know, like it's, Absolutely. it's, it's one of those things that people should keep into that consideration. And that's also what to me makes it so immensely re-listenable is because those things still exist you don't have a, a a time gap you don't have a cultural gap really uh, you know and i think as we go back and i why the the radio programs of say 1947 through through the mid to late 1950s mm -hmm. so important uh, for one there's a a prejudice towards radio of that day in that, oh, it's old and it's it's pat and it's it's not very good. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of stuff that's not very good, just like there's plenty of TV, music, whatever that's not very good. But the good stuff, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that the stuff that I was listening to as a 13-year-old that I thought was good as a 13-year-old, I still think is really good now. And it's not necessarily that I just have great taste. It's that that stuff was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's-, it's I liked it. Yeah, Bob and Bailey's Johnny Dollar is good. That's why you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I have uh, you know, I've I've dated women in in my life and tried to explain to them, you know, if, or or what I what I'm into or or what I'm doing now, and I'll say to them, let me put on an episode of something for you, and it's like the 15 minute, uh, you know, Johnny Dollar, mm -hmm. and, and they'll come to the end of the 15 minute, and they'll and they'll go, that's it, that that's it's over. That's really good. <laughs> It's so easy to listen to. And it's like, there, I got gotcha. you. Yep. You know, it, stuff is good. If, and, um, you know, so, to, to, but to bring that to a larger point, there's also a prejudice, you know, unfortunately, not, it's not, I don't think it's as prevalent as people want to make it, uh, you know, or people on another side and I want to make it, but people look at 1951, which is literally 70 years ago, mm -hmm. that there is nothing similar everything was ignorance and there's nothing similar about that. And it's, it's like, that's not true. People were people, people are going through the same 
BS then as they are now. Maybe the maybe the you know the the flavor inside the uh, chocolate bar was slightly different, but if I'm proverbially speaking, yeah. But yeah. you know, Miss Brooks and is an example of you know a, a school teacher who is a young single woman or man or you know non-binary is still gonna have the same kind of emotions about life than as Connie Brooks. Yeah, the the even- somebody who's constantly broke. Knows yeah. what it's like to need money. You know, it's just that's what it is. You know. Yeah the the amount of uh, uh, times in the show that she'll break down her financial statements and reports, you know, and and you know, let's be saying there is one fantasy element here, I guess, from a broader perspective. Specifics aside, Mrs. Davis is probably the most ideal landlord in any time period because oh, yeah, she's always just oh, don't worry about it, Connie. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just. I mean, like that doesn't. They, they, we lived in a. We were in the, in the middle of a pandemic where la, where landlords were like com- whining and complaining about well, we can't get our rent. I'm like, get a job. Like, but but like the but that kind of portion, it doesn't like inhibit the listening experience. Like that's a gap that doesn't inhibit. And frankly, neither does the. Uh, there is an overwhelming arch of traditional. Uh, frankly, just traditional relationship um, ideals, you know, man and woman. There are structures that are alluded to, but they're frankly not taken that seriously. The ideas of Connie wanting to be a housewife to Philip Boynton are always at odds with her wonderful independence about her. And that to me is interesting because even as it, even as it, alludes to a traditional standard it kind of goes like yeah but not really like (laughs) like, and i think that that's something that something that makes it an essential listen for anybody who's looking for examples out there of like just how revolutionary things were but also how things do carry weight into today like we have several sitcoms dedicated to the lives of teachers that have come with an existence, um, whether that's AP bio or the, the wonderful, but unfortunately now gone, those who can't, um, that was on true TV with the Grolics. They, that concept of the underappreciated educator has still maintained a consistency. Even elements of community carry that. Uh, I know that the, the central focus is not a teacher, but <laughs> yeah. And if you go back, I mean, now it's a generation, I guess, like a, a Boston public, you know, hmm. which is a sitcom to me. That's it's not an audience sitcom or a laugh track sitcom, but it's well, it's not a com. It's a sit drama or whatever. But, yeah, you it, know, there's there's elements of, it, of the same stuff. Yeah. And also um, uh, we, we uh, I, I we've ignored the the obvious uh, Marx Brothers lover in the room. But welcome back, Cotter with Gabe Kaplan. Sure. That. I mean, uh, you know, that doesn't happen without Armas Brooks, like at all. No, definitely not. I mean, yeah, I, I season one of Welcome Back, Cotter. I, I, it's literally the the opening and closing of Welcome Back, Cotter were shot. You know, the 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 the, the um, what do you call shots? Yeah, the 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 opening uh, the opening credits and the the exteriors and the yeah the exterior shots. Thank you. I'm sorry, yeah. my brain was blanking. The exterior shots were shot in the neighborhood where I grew up. So Welcome Back, Cotter has always spoken to me. Yeah. In that regard. Yep. I had a college professor who called me Barbarino, you know, just a, <laughs> he also came, he was also an from Brooklyn. It was an inside joke that only, was not, you know, so, uh, but no, it's, you're right. And, and um, 
to, to just tie it in one more time to Jack Benny um, and shows, you know, the respect that Eve Arden had in general. Mm. Uh, Jack Benny's real life wife was Mary Livingston, yep. who often had some of the sharpest wit on radio, but she had crippling stage fright that somehow basically was masked by her own performance on radio for 20 something years. But by 1954, she basically didn't want to do the show anymore. And what they wound up doing was uh, either uh, uh, Jeanette Wyman. Uh, his, it, it, was, it was either Jeanette Wyman or Joan, depending on who they had available for the right. season. I know Joan did it for an entire season, but they had her read the lines uh, for the studio audience or for the for the in-studio. Right. And then they'd splice in Mary, which always seemed innovative to me when you hear that concept being spoken out definitely loud. but also flat uh, on the front on the finished product yeah i'm sure they're in the studio still funny but jack was considering bringing in eve arden to play the female role yeah and uh you know eve said that on an interview you know if you listen to the breaking walls episode did yeah don't take my word for it take our word for it yeah no it's a small little clip that like we'll put a link to it in the show notes so that people can go to this along with all the other broadcasts we've talked about and the podcast that you've done because i i I genuinely want people to go to where james uh does these shows to listen to this because what we do here is kind of like an like a kind of like a, a, a basic entry point and a general topic discussion but james is giving you the details and he's breaking them down, whether through those interviews or his own research and presenting it in a way that gives you like the biography book that you never got at the library. And something about that clip, because that was the first time I ever heard that ever. I did not know that. And one, it, it makes absolute sense why you would go to Eve for that. Um, it's also an interesting element of understanding Jack more at that point where he was with Mary in regards to her participation on the show. Um, because there's also that press conference where somebody asked him, you know, are you ever going to get Mary Livingston back? And he said, let me tell you something, buddy, if you can get my wife to come back into show business, I'll make you a very rich man. <laughs> like, uh, and, Eve, and by the way, in truth, the show is never the same without Mary Livingston. Yeah, very true. Um, the television, that's one of the reasons why the Jack Benny television show for me is not my go-to is because Mary's very, barely involved in it. But I, I've learned to appreciate the Benny television program for other reasons. Um, and I think that's a distinction given, obviously, that Jack's brilliance was in the medium of radio. But speaking of television... Armas Brooks on television has quite an interesting history because it doesn't last as long as the radio show. And in fact, the radio show outlasts it because the television show ends before the radio show ends. Um, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that. Mm. And I'm, I, I have an unpopular potential opinion here, which is I like Bob Rockwell, but he's no Jeff Chandler as Philip Boynton. Mm-hmm. And we, we only touched on it really quickly was that Jeff Chandler, whose real name is Ira Grissel, was he's a, from New York, uh, was a character actor on radio, um, happened to be a very, you know, a, a, in Eve Arden's words, a, a handsome macho man mm-hmm. who started to get into films and then suddenly found himself as, a, a, if not an A-list actor, a B-plus list actor. Yeah. You know, he was, he was sort of the the action film star of the 1950s in a lot of ways, or one of them. Yeah. And 
So he stayed on though with Miss Brooks on radio until the last, the second to last, he, the last season on radio had Bob Rockwell, but all the other seasons have Jeff Chandler. And even after he um, became a film star, he was still doing the radio show. He would not give it up. And when they went to TV, he wanted to move to TV with the show. He felt, well, but I am Philip Boynton. I'm going to play this role. And, you know, he just wasn't allowed to basically. Yeah. It's it. And much of it has to do with the, with the way film and television were in an embittered battle at that point. You have the, you have the, the film companies not playing nice with television overall. There are exceptions, but there is a, it's similar to early years of radio where some movie studios didn't want their stars on to appear on a radio show. They want exclusivity. And I'm, I'm not, I don't think your I don't think your opinion, by the way, is unpopular, but I guess it's because the way I've always seen it, I think Bob Rockwell's Boynton is good. And I do like it in the movie and on television. I think there is still that bashfulness, but I believe Jeff Chandler's vulnerability more. I yes. believe him to be more vulnerable, which, you know, Eve Arden alluded to this idea, which I don't think has any actual bearing, but Jeff Chandler, you know, he's, he's much more bravado in person on screen than what Philip Boynton is supposed to be. So it would be interesting to see how would that have looked on a television screen with Chandler in that, in that state. And another thing about the television show that seems inconceivable to me because I do love him in this role, but they almost didn't take Dick Crenna. Yeah, they felt he was too old, and he was like 30 <laughs> years old when the TV show finally comes out. Yeah. Steve Arden basically said, give him a screen test then if you don't believe he can do it. Mm -hmm. And of course, as soon as he did one, they said, okay, yeah, no, you're right. You know, yes, we'll, we'll take him. Yeah. And I think, I think there's another element for radio here for a second, which is Eve Arden and Jeff Chandler in real life, by most people's standards are us very aesthetically attractive people. Mm -hmm. So for the part of the reason why it's, it gets such raucous laughter that comes out over the radio from the, the live studio audience is because people are watching two very attractive people play kind of funny roles. You know, mm -hmm. Jeff Chandler is this really handsome man. Imagine, uh, you know, George Clooney playing the bumbling simpleton, or I don't know. I don't, you know, there might be some Republican people listening who don't want to hear about you, but you know what I'm saying? Somebody attractive. I feel you. No, it's, playing it's somebody who is a, you know, a bumbling simpleton, not simpleton, bumbling bashful guy. It makes you like, it, it, it makes you warm to yeah. watch that. I agree. I, I agree. And also to watch Connie Brooks uh, engaged in it. She's not in the episode that we listened to, uh, but uh, her, her constant bickering with Daisy Enright and their their cat fights uh, to use a outdated lexicon or, you know, like uh, maybe unfair, you know, those things like uh, commenting on each other's appearance, commenting on each other's age and, you know, tropes that albeit outdated are still funny considering the performers at hand and how they're playing with that material. And consequently also, you know, you have, I think, I think there's something interesting when it comes to Walter Denton in particular on radio that you don't get in the television show. And that is that Walter kind of takes on a different form in your mind when you're not thinking of Dick Crenna as an actor. 
or as a as a physical performer. Um, he he is a talented voice artist, and that is a vocal performance that, when translated into television and in the motion picture, I do feel something is lost. But thankfully, Krenna is so expressive that I am able to believe him as a high school kid. Um, it's it's something that carries on into as far into the 80s and 90s of 20 to 30 year olds playing high school students and in, in, in motion pictures specifically. Um, but the uh, the other elements of that, like, I mean, Gloria McMillan was 15 when she joined, I believe. So she was actually of a pretty appropriate age at that point. Um, when you get to the movie, which we're not here to talk about the movie, but I'll touch on this real quick. When Walter Denton is playing an ukulele to, um, uh, uh, Harriet, uh, outside of the Conklin porch, it is one of those goofy looking images of just like, this is a, this is a clearly beyond 18 year old man, (laughs) uh, swooning Gloria McMillan. But I do believe it because it's there. It's the same with Leonard Smith as, um, stretch Snodgrass. Um, who, when you watch him on television during the movies, it, it's it's very much, this is not a high school kid. And something that we should bring up within the context of not just this episode, but the entirety of this show, apart from Stretch, Susie, Walter, and Harriet, there are no other students at this school that we ever really hear, apart from the pilot. <laughs> We don't hear about anybody else's problems. It's all these four kids. <laughs> well, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you're, you're saying these things and it was making me think of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, the, the TV version of it, not the film version. Yeah. Now, this whole cast, you're, you know, I mean, I, I'm of the Buffy age. I grew up watching Buffy and Angel, the spinoff. And you look at that cast and you're like, these people are 30. You know? <laughs> and by the way, all these other people on the show, yeah, they're just fodder for evil Hellmouth stuff. They're all gonna die. They're they're a kill count. The, yeah, they're a kill count. The only way we could intertwine this even better because we did just say this is a weekend at Crystal Lake. You know, I'm not saying I wanted a revival in the '80s with a certain franchise, but I, if they can make zombies out of Riverdale folk, I'm down for a Friday the Thirteenth Armis Brooks crossover event. <laughs> um, and uh, to by the way, to wrap it up with that episode though in particular. You know, like the the Crystal Lake motif doesn't go away. It permeates back in the show a bunch. It's one of many set pieces, uh, radio set pieces we get for the show of a mm-hmm. that make it uh, make the world lived in, which is something that we as fans of media properties really uh, latch on to. I think it's it's similar to like The Simpsons. We know places in The Simpsons because that world built itself inward we know springfield we know shelbyville we know the tire yard we know the quickie mart in armis brooks we know madison high we know clay city high we know sunnydale finishing school even which is a place that connie almost went to work for um we know small characters like mayor rimson from the election episode um or mr (laughs) mr jansen the janitor who has to speak in literal terms. (laughs) Um, And that's a lived in world. And it starts here with this immediately here. We are building into an established world where these characters believe where they are living, where they are working, where they are living life. And I think that that is something that is essential 
for any media property to ex- to succeed on the mass corporate scale or the mass mean- mainstream scale. You need to have world building. You need to have everything lived in. You need to have side character bios complete with a trading uh, complete with their own history that the sh- the writers clearly didn't write. Um, that's something that this show definitely possesses. It doesn't innovate it. There's like, I mean, Fibber McGee, Wistful, Wistful Vista does this way before. But Armis Brooks makes this area feel very real. Agreed. Yeah. And uh, so, by the way, both Matt Groening and Seth MacFarlane grew up listening to old radio shows. Seth MacFarlane says it in interviews all the time. That's how he learned how to be a voice actor. Yep. Uh, listening to old radio shows with his father. And if you watch The Simpsons, there are numerous old radio show references in The Simpsons. Even, you know, most Tavern is Duffy's Tavern. Yep. Same thing. Yep. And there's the episode, I watched an episode a few years ago, The Simpsons, where they broke Gunsmoke's TV record for the most episodes. Maybe. And any, Maybe. And during, during the post-closing credit sort of like outro, Bart and Homer are walking and somebody says something like that and Bart says, but what about all the shows they did on radio? And Homer kind of brushes it aside as it, oh, we don't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, with that. And then and it's right to the like, you know, the, the yeah, Gracie films. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's something actually like, you know, like the, the, the 90s culture that referenced uh, the old time radio era in particular, you know, like, I mean, let's even say, I mean, we, we just, we already alluded to it with Armis Brooks in Greece. Like that's, that's very much an Armis Brooks homage within that character. Right, um, she's basically Connie Brooks yeah. as the principal. Yeah, if 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 Connie Brooks got to take over after Mr. Conklin, this is what we get. And right. uh, The Simpsons in particular also has this affinity for grabbing side characters, uh, whether as references or lived-in characters. So like a Gail Gordon one is when uh, uh, Mo is selling uh, commemorative seashells painted to resemble Lucille Ball. And he, she's, he's going like, oh, Mr. Mooney, I just got to be Bob Cummings. Ah. <laughs> um, and of course, Frank Nelson, who has been on Armist Brooks multiple times in various different roles, along with Joe Kearns, like a lot of Benny people went over to Armist Brooks to do stuff. Yeah. Because they were all just work for CBS. Yep. And the uh, one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons is one of my favorites for this specific reason. It's Homer the Bodyguard. It is the debut of the Yes Guy, which is the Frank Nelson guy. Nelson. Yep. People don't realize that's literally from Jack Benny. Yep. It's literally oh, from... in copy. Yeah. And actually, if you, yes. if you listen to the commentary on that, by the way, everybody else is mentioning Sanford and Son... The, the McDonald's commercials, uh, or like other things that Frank Nelson was a part of. Mark Hamill's the one who goes, and Jack Benny. <laughs> so it took Luke Skywalker to remind the writers, like, you know, Mr. Benny, please. Um, so that's so that's why Mark Hamill will never not be a legend in my eyes, apart from that and defining childhoods and whatever. But <laughs> honestly, and you know, it all goes back to Benny in some way because I, I'm of the opinion that, I mean, I... He is on on the Mount Rushmore of the forefathers of the modern sitcom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the side world that you're talking about, all the characters, you know, and I mean, and you know, the guy who the joke's always on him. Yeah. So, 
And there, and there's a lot of instances that Armis Brooks has that too. Connie Brooks gets to be the butt of the joke in a lot of respects. Right. She's yeah. not she's not impenetrable. She no, she is she has multiple dimensions within that aspect. And something to wrap it up for this discussion too would be to point out that they they changed the format on the television show in a very drastic way that I think denigrates part of what our discussion was about the addressment of the education system, because at a certain point in television, they completely shift the setting to a private school and only bring over Eve Arden and Gail Gordon. Yeah. Um, and she hated that. Mm-hmm. She didn't want to do it. She said, you're going to ruin it. I'll have my people back in six months. And that, all that came true, but then it was too late. Yeah. And Armis Brooks, the series ends in 1957. Um, there was a motion picture made of the film. Uh, the this will this will be a Ballyhoo episode, not necessarily for anything it fully innovates that we haven't already talked about. Although one can make an argument for the movie Bad Teacher. Um, uh, I I think that that's a movie that is interesting in the grand scheme of radio film cross promotion in particular as something that Kathy Fuller Seeley uh, discussed with us on our Sullivan's travels episode. And we've talked about on the Benny programs here, the idea of the cross promotion, the cross pollination of mediums uh, cooperating and uh, working in tandem with each other in a certain regard. And frankly, taking hot IP and turning it into a motion picture, which still happens today. Um, And Eve Arden for a woman who didn't want to watch her performances, who didn't who didn't think that she was as beautiful as her mother, who didn't think that she needed to go back and look at those things. She I, the story of her only watching Mildred Pierce for 10 minutes and then walking out after she got the Oscar nomination floors me. It's just floors me. You know, Eve Arden in her later life, she had a, a, a an element in her career where she really did not want this radio career, as you alluded to earlier. She wanted to be a stage actress. She wanted to be on the stage. And I, there's a quote here that I had in regards to how that character blossomed for her and where she learned to appreciate it. And and really the only way Connie Brooks could, which is when she was talking to John Dunning, um, mm-hmm. the great John Dunning, uh, who he t- she told him, I originally loved the theater, I still do, and I had always wanted to have a hit on Broadway that was created by me. You know, kind of like Judy Holiday and Born Yesterday. I griped a little about it. And somebody told said to me, do you realize that if you had a hit on Broadway, probably 100 or 200,000 people might have seen you in it if you had stayed in it long enough? And this way, you've been in Miss Brooks. Everybody loves you. You've been seen by millions. So I figured I'd better shut up while I was ahead. <laughs> yeah, and it's true, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was. It's the classic thing of uh, she sort of backed into this mm-hmm. and it fell in love with it. Yeah, and I can imagine that I'm not a I'm not a high school teacher, but I I listen to that sh- this show as comfort food, James. Like it's it's like it's something that 
I found amid my radio discovery. I didn't even tell my origin with it. I found it at random in a random box set that one of my teachers gave to me. Mm. My teacher saw that I was into Jack Benny and she gave me this little box of tapes. They weren't in any uh, holders or anything. She just tapes she had. One of them was Armis Brooks. I listened to it and then immediately scoured the internet for any MP3 I could find of every episode that I could find. A teacher gave me Armis Brooks accidentally. Yeah, right. How fitting. It's I, I. It's not the reason that it sticks with me, but it is one of those like nice little anecdotes. But the big reason is that I don't want to live necessarily in the Benny world, but I can feel a part of it should I choose to when I listen to it. Like, I can get invested in that world. I kind of want to spend a day at Madison High and hanging out with those guys and getting into weird, goofy adventures. Like, that's not something that that's not something you that, that that's not something to take lightly when it comes to this show. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between these these two shows is that the Benny characters were caricatures and they knew it. Mm-hmm. And that's what made it funny. And the Eve Arden, our Miss Brooks characters were real. Er. Yeah. They're- and what makes it funny is that you've experienced it. I mean, you've the, the, Benny, the Benny stuff you've experienced too, but it's relatable from a, hey, this is real kind of way, not from a, that's an extreme version of me kind of way. Yes. That's, that's, that's a good thing to point out because it's always been pointed out that Benny would take something, a part of your personality and exaggerate it. Um, whether it's Phil Harris's drinking or Dennis Day being naive and Armis Brooks, this could have been your teacher. Conklin could have been your principal. Walter Denton could have been your best friend in high school. Um, and Mrs. Davis could have been your grandmother. Like that, yep. this, this, this world is so real that you, you, you would listen to it and be honored if you were a, an alumnus of Madison High School. And that's something yep. that I think that because this is so readily available, like legitimately, you can get every episode that is currently available, quality varying, on Audible. You can get it on YouTube. The television show is very inaccessible right now. Um, and as as a stickler for the preservationist side of things, one thing that CBS has become that I don't like is picky with what it decides to put out from its library. They were doing an archive series of DVDs for their television series, and they put out the first uh, few chunks of Armis Brooks before stopping that physical media program. And to this day, it is not streaming anywhere. That is... That, along with their inability to figure out how to put out the old Murphy Brown show, is ungodly stupid to me. <laughs> um, and I think that there is still an audience for that show. Now, granted, though, as we've talked about, radio works better for Brooks in a lot of ways. But any form of this, for me, is fun. Because it all goes back to Connie. And I couldn't have picked a better co-host for this, because you helped us dissect where the medium was and what and James not to keep blowing your own horn tooting your own horn here but you have built something for people to understand the business machinations as well as the artistic machinations of what this industry was an industry that frankly doesn't we don't have podcasts without this industry because it took broadcast radio dying in a certain respect for the podcast 
market to emerge and rebirth it. It's like a it's it's a it's an evolved form. And mm-hmm. the the work that you do, whether giving us new things or reminding us of old things, is easily one of the most essential jobs that could ever exist in this format. The fact that you take that on is fucking wonderful. So 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 just play this back anytime you're ever having any self-doubt or whatever. Just listen to my screechy voice permeating your earbuds there. Um, and Thank you. really quickly, before we wrap it up, I want you to remind people of what you have in the works. And if you're comfortable, tell us about Frontier Gentlemen. Sure. Uh, so if you want to listen to Breaking Walls, which is what we have focused on today, basically, uh, you know, in a way, uh, that's the show that I do on the history of radio. It has been, a, I mean, uh, let's say this, it's been a monthly documentary that as of January 1, 2022, I'm changing the format a little bit. You will still get the full length episodes at the end of the month, but I will be releasing episodes on roughly Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays in parts throughout the month. Mm. So rather than sitting down to listen to a full three hour episode, you'll now get that in like 12 parts. Uh, just easier for me to, you know, build a content library that way. Mm. Um, and also so I can go to YouTube with it because making a premiere pro video file of a three hour thing and then uploading it to YouTube. <laughs> I uh, don't feel like doing that. So no. uh, I'll, do it, I'll do it more. You know, Nobody in- has that kind of encoding time. <laughs> right. Exactly. So if you go to the wall breakers, T H E W A L L B R E A K E R S.com slash breaking dash walls, or just go there and you can find it. Uh, you can access breaking walls, or if you just search for breaking walls, wherever you get a podcast, it's there mm-hmm. except YouTube, unless you listen to this in five years, then it's there. But if not, it'll be there soon. Uh, now, uh, you know, you touched on something, which was when I started to make these documentaries, which kind of came out of, um, Hey, nobody is doing a history of audio on audio. This seems like a really one-to-one thing. I'll do it because I want to do it. Uh, that was, that was kind of my mindset then. And, and honestly, um, I said it before, uh, my background is in art and design. I, I'm kind of cheeky about that these days. But I am, if you count school, spent 15 years of my life as a designer, art director, copywriter. I don't really tell too many people that, but that is a fact. Uh, went to an Ivy League art school, you know, which gave me the, the background to do some of this stuff. But this was, you know, uh, the world of art direction was a salmon swimming upstream for me. And this has been decidedly downstream in a good way yeah uh, in the time that i was doing these documentaries i was saying all right this is great but i've got to make new stuff i want to make new stuff so i did a i i, I had an original marlowe philip marlowe short story that i uh wrote in college that i then adapted into a radio you know a six-part audio drama in 2018 i'm going to remaster that this year and make it better and basically redo all of my parts in it because Marlo does not have a Brooklyn accent because Marlo comes from California, uh, <laughs> Southern California, in fact. Uh, but you know, that was as a way to like, how do you, uh, I got to teach myself how to do this. So I started to get, get the, my feet wet in that I've been working for the last four years now on a soap opera, an audio soap opera called burning Gotham, burninggotham.com. 
It's a historical fiction audio soap opera that's set in 1835 New York City. I don't normally say this. I'll say it publicly. The main One of the main characters in this ensemble is Aaron Burr's real-life illegitimate son, Aaron Columbus Burr. Ooh. He had an illegitimate son, um, along with several other people that are incredibly famous or infamous and maybe forgotten. So if you want to find out more information about that project, which is currently in development, go to burninggotham.com. And I also recently directed, uh, helped adapt, acted in, and did all post-production for a revival, a modernization of Frontier Gentlemen. If you are familiar with the CBS radio series from 1958, Frontier Gentlemen, well, the creator, Anthony Ellis's daughter and I um, got together to do this pilot. The pilot is live. You can listen to it right now at FrontierGentlemen.com. Please do. I, I, you know, I'm currently pretty proud of it. Um, in two years, I'll, I'm sure I won't be. <laughs> Matt, no, that's fine. Here, um, yeah. here, James. In two years from now, stop beating yourself the fuck up. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and, and if uh, Miss Brianna Ellis Isaac listens to it, this happens. To listen to this interview. It's just because I meant that skills advance in two years, and then we are yeah. on harsh. Oh, absolutely. Right. No, yeah. This show, uh, by this show, by the way, will get ten times better as it keeps going on because I'm going to add wackier sound effects to just drown out my voice. So <laughs> that is something that's true. Uh, you know, if you listen to Breaking Wall episodes from 75 76 77 78 you can hear that i'm figuring it out as i go mm-hmm. and then i'm you know even to, to this day i've done i grew up watching ken and rick burns documentaries uh and by the way ken burns has a brother named rick burns who's the second most famous documentary maker in the country and in his own family his, and therefore a lot of people don't even know who he is his you know, co- so. his coney island doc i love it it's a, it's a standard bearer for me watched it with my mom when i was five years old mm-hmm. i did an episode of breaking walls on radio in coney island i think it's 92 mm-hmm. episode 92 one of my favorite episodes personally that uh you know and i uh i find that it's easier for me to go back and listen to shows from two three years ago without having such a critical ear for myself as I do from listening to a show from last, you know, last month. Yeah. Um, Cause it's always in the immediate and you're always wondering, did I, did I push something too far? Like you're, you're, you're so close to it that in that time zone that. Yeah. Here's why my one for me, why is it that no matter what I do, I blow out levels? Yeah. <laughs> speaking as somebody who laughs too damn loud i understand that pain <laughs> no matter how much i try yes why why is my voice both low and high all at the same time <laughs> it's a magic it's a it's a magical ability and yes i want people to check out here anybody who's listening to the show please check out the frontier gentleman pilot please check out breaking walls please read up on what's coming with burning gotham and James, we'll want you back. We're gonna work work on a way to get you back. I'd love to get you on for a movie because I, I we we've talked about radio. I need to get your film geek out there. Um, and we'll I I know that you you were very very enthusiastic about something I was watching recently that I think would be a wonderful film to, to talk with you, which is the Petrified Forest, um, with uh, Leslie Howard and Betty Davis and uh, some some guy who would end up owning a cafe out in the middle of the desert. I, I don't know. It was um, Humphrey. <laughs> Bogart. Yeah. Um, um, But that's going to wrap it up for the episode. Um, Gentlemen, ladies, uh, school teachers, uh, geeky kids alike. You can follow this show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. All of our tags are on the back half. You can email us at ballyhoo review pod at gmail.com. 
on the upcoming episodes. Um, we are going to be bringing back Big John, Mr. John Matthews, for Tales of Tomorrow to introduce television to the Ballyhoo and discussing the uh, the medium that k- killed the radio star, if you will. Um, we are also going to be introducing Betty Davis and Joan Crawford to the Ballyhoo with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, uh, a, 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 sh- a movie that has permeated the pop culture in several ways, mainly thanks to uh, Ryan Murphy's feud uh, uh, series. Um, and coming up, we will also be, I will uh, give this little tease here. Um, we are going to be talking with Marshall Rosales again, and he has brought a film to the Ballyhoo that has a lot to do with the current struggle being experienced with IATSE um, and with labor in general. So it will be a very, uh, on a special episode of Ballyhoo discussion that we're going to have with it. Um, And also uh, we will be having Cheryl Jones from movies made me coming on to talk about the most infamous Jack Benny film of all time. The one, the only the horn blows at midnight. We're going to, we're going to go to crazy town. It's fun. Huge hit. hit. (laughs) Don't get me started. We got to save it for the episode. (laughs) I've been looking. And also, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I am working on, um, on this, but we are going to be talking about the meanest man in the world as well, because I, I dug up some stuff on that film that made my perception of Benny's film career completely shift, but you'll have to stay tuned for that. Um, But until all of this and until next time, folks, good night. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Wow.